make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people no definitely not dad you know me i'm never <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite yeah, yeah okay welcome to conversations with your lovable never pisses anyone off never been banned from facebook or youtube never been sabotaged or censored for politely expressing a difference of opinion ex-muslim host Ina, keeping it non-controversial Welcome to episode 17. I am thrilled to have Sam Harris join me today. Sam, of course, needs no introduction, especially to my audience. Hi, Sam. Hi, Ina. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. And I, I know we've been, well, I've been trying to chat with you for a while. Um, I wrote you this open letter a while ago. I think it was like a year ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and did you also did you write a letter to Ben Affleck? Is that the first thing I saw? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I wrote one to Ben Affleck, right. which uh, talked about how how he might have the right intent, but he really doesn't. He's not helping anything at all. Hmm. So I think we agree on that pretty much. Uh, yeah, I think we do. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on pretty much everything, especially like, like your recent. Trump denouncing and you're, you know, calling out people who use the word cuck. Mm -hmm. And ironically, it's been it's been so beautiful to watch. Oh, nice. I'm glad you felt that way because not everybody <laughs> did. No, I know. And I, I have been longing to see this distinction for so long. Like, and I think you just made it clear so beautifully. And I think you were kind of surprised by how many how many people were upset or shocked yeah, well, I you know I, I am surprised by um, how many jerks I have following me. I mean, it's, it's been um, it's been a little bit of a wake up call, and I, it's not that everyone who would support Trump is by definition a jerk, but you know I have not encountered much in the way of reasoned defenses of that point of view, and just a lot of totally senseless animosity, and so it's it's been interesting. Right. I mean, I think you, you're getting a little bit of a taste of what it's like to be ex-Muslim almost, mm. because when we call out anti-Muslim bigotry, like like clear anti-Muslim bigotry, like don't sterilize Muslim women or something like that, you know, then we'll call social justice warriors or regressive leftists or, you know, Islam apologists or stealth Islamists. And I was kind of getting really sick of that. So I'm glad you spoke out against it because this is kind of where this is kind of what I was talking about in the letter about your podcast with Douglas Murray. I know mm -hmm. that you don't entirely agree, but we can talk about that. But it's that distinction that was hoping to see. And I, I think I can see it like time and time again, it, even in your talk with Ayan, you, you and Ayan both were like, it's immoral to keep, you know, blanketly keep Muslim immigrants out. Right, right. Yeah. So take me back to that letter, because I remember you wrote it. I, I have not read it recently. I, and I, I think I read it just before I did my podcast with Mariam Namazi, the, the ill-fated podcast with Mariam Namazi. Yeah. And so I, and I think I said something by way of uh, answering your letter there, or at least 
gestured in that direction. But you know, I'm happy to talk about anything. But I, I certainly want to talk about anything that you might have been unsatisfied with in in, in terms of my responding to what you wrote. And um, I just want to in any area in where we differ, I, I would I would want to cover that. Yeah, I mean, I just like to kind of figure out where we differ exactly because it's not even entirely clear. And I think one of the things, uh, firstly, let me just say that I was really uh, saddened by the the podcast between you and Mariam. Mm. Uh, I respect both of you, and I think you're both wonderful voices and important voices. And it's it kind of really sucked to see that it didn't. There was no real productive conversation there. It seemed like you guys were talking over each other. And uh, I've been denounced by both camps, really. The dogmatic Mariam Namazi followers have said that I'm, you know, like a dirty MRA, like entertaining anti-Muslim bigots because I won't, like, just write you off. Mm. And then the dogmatic Sam Harris fan camp has said that I'm like an anti-white bigot or I just other like nonsense on both sides, really. And I mean, is it really that bad that I still think you're both great? It's it's hard to, you know, to be made to pick sides. There's so much tribalism going on. Yeah, well, you know, I, I don't think we were equally at fault for how that conversation went. I mean, I, I, I like you, I was quite surprised by the result. I, I brought her on expecting that we were really going to agree about almost everything and that we could, could have a very productive conversation. And while I, I wasn't that familiar with her work at that point, I, I just, I was, from what I had seen, I, I really was a, a supporter of hers. Um, yeah. And I and I still am. I mean, I, you know, I think the the way she gets treated by Islamists and and uh, the the kind of risks she takes to put herself out there, I, I think she's fantastic. But there was just something so stubborn about the way she approached her her conversation with me that it just it, it became really unproductive. And and that that was the onus certainly was more on her, I thought. And then how she behaved herself afterwards. Which, understandably, she got so much criticism that she that it got under her skin, and she kind of freaked out. But the the way she attacked me on social media afterwards, really for she basically attacked me as though I were flaming her like one of the, my crazy fans. But you know, I, I I immediately got when I saw what was happening I, on Twitter. I I got on Twitter and told my you know I went out to to everyone following me on Twitter and said you know please don't. You know, go after my guests is totally yeah, unproductive. Yeah, I remember that. Um, so it's it's not. I didn't. I I did not direct any of that uh, anger towards her. But people found her contribution to that podcast fairly infuriating for reasons that were pretty clear to me. And so, in any case, I just think it's it's, it's totally unfortunate. You know, her view about open borders, which I, I'm sure we'll get to, is something that people found. Pretty flabbergasting. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I did my first episode on my podcast was with Mariam. And I remember asking her about open borders. Like, I thought it was just something her critics just smear her with. Mm. So I was surprised that that was her actual view. And we discussed, I think, bringing in criminals and stuff. And, and she, she had very different views to me saying that, I don't exactly remember, so I don't want to misquote, but it was something like we sh even if they're criminals, we should bring them over and try them. 
Yeah, well, her view, as expressed on my podcast, was that it wasn't a matter of, we shouldn't try to keep dangerous or fanatical people out, but we should just rely upon our local laws. Once they come in and misbehave, well, then we can prosecute them. But she she was she's seemed to not at all accept the wisdom of keeping people who we whose bad intentions we can detect at the border out. That didn't seem to be just a matter of it being impractical to do that. She just thought it was somehow having functioning borders. She th- seems to think is just in principle unethical. Right. I mean, I, I I disagree with her on that, and I think you disagree with her on that. It's funny because when you talked about it on your podcast, I think you talked about my letter to you, and mm. you discussed mine and Mariam's views as kind of the same, mm. which I felt like misrepresented me a bit. Yeah, well, that, that was a measure of my not understanding who Mariam right. was, really. Perhaps, yeah. yeah, because I think I'm more in line with, with your views on this. Um Definitely not in line with Douglas Murray's views on this and not in line with Mariam's views. But yeah, I think you you said something like Mariam and I are quick to pull the trigger on the word bigot. Right. Um, Well, yeah, so I I want to ask you now because I'm not sure there's that much distance between uh, Douglas and myself here. I I haven't heard him say anything. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I want to explore a little bit. Yeah. So what, what, what do you take to be his view? Well, he in the past has said stuff like, and this is a direct quote from a speech he did, and this is a while ago, mm. like I think it's a decade ago that he did this speech and it and it was uh, it made a lot of people upset and cut ties with him or whatever. But he said, it is late in the day, but Europe still has time to turn around the demographic time bomb, which will soon see a number of our largest cities fall to Muslim majorities. All immigration into Europe from Muslim countries must stop. Mm. I'm certainly, uh, I'm, I understand the reason why someone would say that. And, and before you got to the last sentence, um, that might all be true. I, I don't actually know the, the current demographic projections, but it certainly seems possible that that's the case. Uh, you know, assuming birth rates don't, don't adjust for for both groups, but and so I could see why one would want to pull the brakes in that way. It's just you know this comes back to the kinds of things that Ion said. Uh, Ion and I both said on my last podcast, which was you know given the need. I mean, given given the the just the the really unendurable suffering of the people coming out of. Syria and Iraq at the moment, we have to find some space for as many as we can reasonably vet and accommodate. And uh, but the, the reality is, is we're not going to take everybody. And so there's of course yeah, yeah. And so that so there's still so the problem never totally gets solved by immigration. It's still a, just a catastrophe. And um, I think Douglas is. I, mean, I think, the, and you know, I, I could be speaking for him a little recklessly here because I, you know, we, uh, we haven't spoken about this point per se. But I think he's just urging on us a a, a kind of painful realism, which is, you know, this is a pro- this is a problem either way. You know, like with or without immigration to Europe, 
you're going to have vast refugee camps in the territories around Syria and Iraq. And we have to find some way to make all of that as workable as possible. And having people jump into the Mediterranean and just emerge on the shores of Europe is a terrible solution. And it's terrible for all these other downstream effects that you were seeing in Europe because the vetting is proving impossible and we have jihadists and Islamists and people who aren't going to assimilate European values in any reasonable time frame just now living in the capitals of Europe. And so I, I understand how alarming all that is. And, and you know, frankly, we're lucky in the United States not to be suffering the exact same problem. And we have two vast oceans protecting our country. And that's just a that's just a happy accident for us and an, an unhappy one for the the people who could otherwise jump in boats and and you know, you know arrive in, uh, in on the shores of Florida or New York or anywhere else and because they can't do that we really don't have to think the way Douglas is thinking right now and um, and again that's just an accident and it's not it's not um, Anything but there are, there are plenty of uh, sensible people in Europe that don't think the way Douglas is thinking, right? I mean, there's the, the, the issues, the questions of sustainability and just the physical uh, logistics and the possibilities of bringing different, like how much can we, how many people can we actually hold within these countries and cities? But then there's a problem of just kind of blanketly treating Muslims as a homogenous group when that includes people like future ions, as you've said, it includes people like myself. And I mean, it's, it's that kind of not distinguishing that bothers me. But I think he would distinguish. This is sort of a problem. You know, when you catch someone in the midst of one sentence or one paragraph where they can't say everything they think on the topic, a repeated theme in his work. Like, I, that's what I was hoping to when I heard him on your podcast. Like, a lot of things he said made me cringe. So I'm like, okay, well, let me just look into more of his work. I don't want to misunderstand. And the more I look, the more concerned I am. So, like, he says things like, um, he wrote this article about the census. Here's a quote from him. Is the fact that white Britons are now a minority in their capital city a demonstration of diversity because there aren't enough white people to make them diverse? But what levels after all said and done do the celebrants of diversity want to get to? What is their ideal target figure? Is a ceiling of 25% white Britons in London or the country at large optimal? Or would it be 10% or none at all? Now, this is, you know, put in a much more sophisticated manner, but it sounds essentially like the white genocide arguments. Well, no, I mean, what I take him to mean there, and again, it's it's hard to parse out of context, but for instance, Glenn Lowry, uh, the black economist at Brown, who who I did a podcast with, who who I thought was fantastic. I mean, he's, he, he, Tends to he make great, yeah. he he makes similar points to this though and and he I just recently read a, a quote of his where he was talking about the the problem of identity politics and he said something like if you're going to practice identity politics as a black man you can't be surprised in fact you should welcome uh, I mean this is uh, this is kind of paraphrasing him but 
um, you, you can't be surprised when when white people start to engage in their own identity politics. I mean, what what alternative is is left to them if identity politics is uh, articulates the rules of the game? And of course, his his punchline was that identity politics is a disaster and we should avoid it at all costs. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I think Douglas would make would agree with that. I think he's just he's pointing out a kind of hypocrisy that it, it's just that the um, he, I think he recognizes that it's inadmissible to celebrate white culture or to defend white culture against its against this kind of onslaught of difference or, or diversity. Um, and Do you think that it would be the same to have, like, say, a group for black pride and white pride? Well, no, I just I think it, we we accept black pride as a as an I, I think it's unpragmatic and it's not it's not a good it's not good politics, but we accept it as an inoffensive idea. It's not it's not synonymous with bigotry. You know, when it, right, if, yeah. if, if a black person speaks about black pride, you know, I don't immediately recognize him to be a racist. But if a white person does it, well, that that person is just you know he might as well be a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and that is, but are you saying that you don't understand why that is, or it shouldn't be like that or, oh, no, I, I should I, be I, able I, to celebrate white pride. No, no. I, I, I think that's the, um, at minimum, uh, an idiotic, uh, variable to gather around, but it's, it's almost guaranteed to be synonymous with racism in 99% of the people who do it. So, I mean, the, 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 the difference is is pretty clear, and, and the, the, the historical reasons for the difference are also clear. But the the, the point Lowry was making, and the point that I, I think Douglas w- was making, or at least would agree with, is that it's this is a this is an unstable and at bottom hypocritical double standard. If you are going to insist that. You're, that that the goal is some form of identity politics, and you just want to win the identity politics game. You want to defend your smaller tribe uh, and use diversity as a kind of the ultimate uh, value by which to to advance your interests in society. You're gonna you're eventually gonna run into this uh, the problem of everyone else's identity politics and white people in the end are going to need their own identity politics. Um, or, or at least they're, they're going to want many of them are going to want their, their identity politics. And that just seems like a, a, a really bad way to, in, to try to get to a, a, a happy future. I, I, I think the, the future should be just a, we all need a bigger tribe. We need a tribe that oh, entails I... the, the whole species. I couldn't agree more. And that's kind of how I view it. Like, I don't really see myself as part of a a group, really. So I'm happy to criticize atheists, even though I am one. I'm happy to criticize the Muslim community, even though I belong to it. Even as an ex-Muslim, I consider myself, like, I can't really remove myself from the community, I guess. <clears throat> right. Uh, so I'm happy I mean, to criticize Pakistan, Canada, whatever, even feminists. You know, I'm happy to criticize feminists when it's reasonable criticisms. But then there's people who just 
just think feminism is cancer and then they they think that feminism should just not exist and i yeah. think that's unreasonable so so i understand the point that you're making and that way of putting it sounds really it it sounds much more reasonable but then the way that douglas puts it it doesn't it doesn't come off that way it comes off more of a concern about a declining white population and i think as the world globalizes and as our tribe increases the white populations of the world no one will really be racially pure white or brown or black or anything really yeah well you know i i i'm uncomfortable talking about douglas's view i think i think i can say things that are probably 95% as edgy as as he has on this topic and then then we can just talk about my view but i i would just say as a kind of a blanket endorsement of Douglas. You know, he is a very smart, ethical, cosmopolitan guy. And I, I, fi- I would find it absolutely astonishing if he was uh, at all bigoted in this, in the way that, that your reading of him would suggest. I think, I think the color of a person's skin has got to be totally uninteresting to him. Um, I think he's, I think the point he would want to make, which, which I totally understand is if you're talking about Muslim immigration, you are talking about, uh, on some level, the the prevalence and power of some very disturbing and dangerous and divisive ideas. We're not talking about skin. We're not. We're talking. We're talking about what what people believe to be true about the nature of the world and how everyone should live in it. And uh, so, if you grab a million Muslims and put them into Germany, and you have just sampled randomly from a Muslim, the Muslim population in Iraq or Syria, you will, by definition, be getting some percentage, and we can, we can you know, maybe only guess as to what the percentages are, but you'll get some percentage that is basically a jihadist, and you'll get, some course, lar- yeah. you'll get some larger percentage that is Islamist, and you'll get a larger percentage than that that may not even conceivably be supportive of, of terrorism, but they'll still be so conservative in their religious attitudes that they will be totally against the norms of free speech and gender equality and, and, and our, really our core political values and will not assimilate anytime soon, right? That They will fight these norms with everything they've got. And then you'll have a, a, another percentage and... Again, we, I would be guessing as to as to what this is, but it, this is the percentage you want. This is the percentage you really want, and, and this is what you would be screening for if you could screen these people in advance. You would get the percentage of people who are who just happen to be Muslim, but they are human beings first, and they are they they actually want to live the way you and I want to live, and they. They're not going to practice honor killing on their daughter if their daughter is caught holding some guy's hand in public. And and these are the people where, you know, you would have been one of these people and Ayan would have been one of these people and and, and all the, 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 the future reformers and liberals and secularists of the Muslim world fall into this camp. And I think, you know, Douglas would, would certainly agree with me that yeah. there's no problem that we would want to, you know, if we could magically bring these people over, we would bring them over because this but is. But he's not the one saying that, though. That's always you making that point, which I appreciate. But it's just, I mean, I, I just know, and again, I mean, I'll leave it to Douglas to defend himself, and maybe sometime he can come on your podcast. But I just know how he feels 
about Ion and I mean I just I mean he's I met him through Ion. He's one of yeah. Ion's biggest champions, and he, he's just not. Um, Douglas is not a racist. He's just he's someone. I mean, again, you have to appreciate the context in which he's usually speaking. He's standing up in Western Europe, and uh, you know, in uh, in a situation which which appears to be a kind of emergency. If you're among the few people willing to to talk about it, I mean, it's just the level of political correctness on this issue he has to go up against, and the immediate need to get the, our our heads together about it is is much more salient in Europe at the moment than it is in in the US. You're uh, absolutely right, but I mean I feel like it's ineffective because all it does is it makes people defensive and people that could be allies as well. Perhaps he could soften his like I'm not asking you to defend what he's saying. I'm just hmm. explaining why I think the way that I think about him and I also, you know, make it a point to separate him from from like bigots like like Donald Trump say. Right. I don't think he's like that. I think he's very eloquent, sophisticated, intelligent, charming, and very good at taking down Islamists. But it's this one thing that, like, his concerns about white Britons, and I feel like he exaggerates a bit on Muslim immigration when he says, like, you know, uh, we, we've got to stop all Muslim immigration. And then he says things like, you know, we should even persuade back the people who have fled tyrannies. We should persuade them back once those tyr- once the cause of their flight has been removed. Mm. Or he talks about how the country's closer. He he seems to have this fear of really people coming in. And he, he talked about this other speech from, I think it's 1968. It was a speech that he himself said made discussing immigration very difficult because this, this politician, Enoch Powell, um, did it in a way which made people very defensive. And uh, he too said he disagreed with parts of it. But then he goes on to say every single thing that even the doommongers said has turned out to be wildly understated. All Mm. of the people that my society shut down as prophets of doom turned out to have vastly understated the case. And Enoch was talking about, I think, immigration in terms of race. So he talked about how there was a white woman that lived on a street where she was the only white woman. I think he was saying that, yes, white people have become a minority and this wasn't an exaggeration, but I just feel that it's... It's kind of an, a paranoia on his part. What is the problem with us all intermingling and white people no longer being the majority? Well, well again, I, I, I would bet a lot that the variable really isn't skin color. It's, it's culture and, and the ethical norms that, that culture and, and religion support. And so, you know, if, if he knew that you were going to bring in a million ions and inas i can't imagine him having a problem with it and that's again i'll just i'll just leave you to talk to him about that i mean yeah which sounds I, yeah. fair but i just hope that you understand why from reading this stuff i'm concerned like i'm yeah. not on board with his views entirely yeah but i mean i, I can say things that you know the the sorts of things that douglas would say and they, you know, they may sound alarming to you, and and so we can talk about them. So, for instance, 
You know, I think it is, and this is really at the core of Douglas's concern, I'm sure. I think it's reasonable to worry whether we are witnessing the destruction of Europe right now. And for demographic reasons, and for reasons that are, that are very, it's very difficult to resist. But not for like white people declining reasons, no, just no, cultural reasons, yes, maybe. Yes, it has nothing to do with skin color. It has, it's just, you know, if, if you told me, you know, if you had a crystal ball and you said, actually, uh, 75 years from now, Europe is going to have much more the character of the Middle East today than the Europe you you know and love. Um, that certainly seems possible to me, um, and it's worth worrying about. And that would be like, real, like really possible. Like people will impose Sharia, or or just that there'll be you know if you said to me twenty years from now there will be a civil war in France and a million people will die, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that does not seem like like a, a completely paranoid concern. I mean, that, that, you know, I, what are the odds of that? I would, I would put the odds of that at, who knows? If you told me, if you told me the odds were 50-50, I wouldn't find a good reason to tell you they weren't. Now, if you told me that about the United States uh, or Canada, I would be much more surprised. And um, so that's a measure of, of how, of how dis- different the problem is in Europe. And, and it's largely, it's not entirely due to the recent migration crisis, but it's, um, it's certainly been exacerbated by it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I really, you know, I mean, how much, how much terrorism should we be expecting in Europe in the future? And how much should we uh, care uh, about it increasing? I mean, th- I mean, this is, this is a line that I, that I used on, on a podcast uh, at least a year ago, I think when I was talking about Gaza, I, when I, when I, it was this, the, the worst titled podcast ever. It was, you know, why don't I criticize Israel, question mark. And everyone mm-hmm. read that to, to mean that I actually don't criticize Israel, but of course I do. <laughs> um, so I, but at the end I, I said, you know, you know, we're all living in Israel. It's just some of us haven't realized it yet. And, you know, more and more when we see terrorism happen, you know, outside of the Middle East and outside of Israel, and we see it in, in the capitals of Europe, and we see events like the, the Orlando shooting and San Bernardino. And how much more of that do we need to have before basically the entire world becomes like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, where the mm-hmm. the daily expectation of terrorism is something that you basically can never forget about, right? And mm-hmm. I, you know, I certainly don't want to live in that world, and I want to absolutely and, me neither. And so I want to do whatever I can to resist our slide in that direction. But to to look at what's going on in Europe, I mean, I just saw this this frontline episode on the, the recent terrorism in Europe, and and I mean, the, the punchline of this of this documentary was Europe it, Europe is totally unprepared. To deal with this problem mm-hmm. from a, from a law enforcement point of view, I mean, in terms of what it takes to, I mean, how inept they were at stopping the Paris attacks, even when when most of these guys were already on their radar, it was just hopeless. I mean, it was they 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 couldn't begin to deal with the problem at their current level, and 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 France has been in a state of emergency ever since. Who knows what they're actually doing from a law enforcement point of view, but. They have a they have a huge problem. France is much more like Israel 
than it has ever been in the past and may never recover a, a, a state of normalcy. And it's hard to see how bringing in hundreds of thousands of people who are imperfectly vetted or not vetted at all from Syria and Iraq is going to help that problem. And that's that's mm-hmm. what I think is animating people like Douglas. So even if we were to vet people perfectly and only get the the most perfect and most compatible types of Muslims to come in from now on, mm-hmm. I think that won't stop the ideology that is concerning from spreading anyway. And possibly alienating Muslims that were kind of on the fence that could have gone towards extremism by by targeting Muslims in the way that, you know, no more Muslims allowed in here. It could lead them to be more susceptible to become radicalized. Yeah, I mean, I, I do find that argument, that's the, the argument that I've called the, the narrative narrative. You, you, you don't want to confirm the narrative of ISIS yeah. Otherwise, you'll, you'll push many more Muslims into their camp on some level. That's that's the, the shorthand version of it. I think that that might be a reasonable concern, but if it is, it's a totally crazy and unacceptable fact about our world. I mean, it just, I mean, what does that say? I mean, I mean, there's absolutely nothing that could be said about white people. Or about Jews, or about you know any of any of these identities that that are closer to me, um, that could cause that could radicalize. Yeah, that, well, that, yeah, that could cause me to be sympathetic with you know people who are putting journalists and aid workers in orange jumpsuits and cutting their heads off. Right? I mean, that that that's the implication that there's somehow of you're going yeah. to drive people toward ISIS or Al Qaeda, uh, you know, jihadism. Um, but it's it, not really just Muslims that are susceptible to it, right? You can see that ISIS does uh, recruit people that are white too. No, but they're but they're, but they're white Muslims. They're they're believers. Well, of course, right. of yeah. course. But first, they're not Muslims, and then they become Muslims and become radicalized. But yeah. somehow they're able to reach anyone they like, even teenage girls from Belgium. You know? Yeah, yeah, um, and, and that's I mean that's so it's all about the ideas from my point of view. So it's it, right. So I think just. Uh, stopping Muslims from entering won't stop that ideology from spreading. We've got to have something more effective that but, but targets that, the ideas. I don't know what it is or how we can do it, but just containing people in their own little hives won't stop it, I think, because the ideas are already there. They're going to multiply still. Yeah, but again, the problem isn't just as narrow as jihadism or even Islamism, but you're talking about religious conservatism as well. So and then this is this is something that I didn't really appreciate until I collaborated with Majid Nawaz uh, on our book, but you can have conservative Muslims who can honestly say they they're totally unsympathetic with ISIS and Al-Qaeda and that those those extremist groups have hijacked their religion, but they still think that apostasy probably should be punishable by death or they still think that yeah. homosexuality is a killing offense or, you know, honor killing is reasonable. And and so, you know, you have to deal with with those attitudes as well. And I mean, I, I just think we, uh, this is where, you know, someone like Ayan 
is so good. And when she says these things, you know, she can obviously say them in a way that Douglas can't. We have to have the same expectations of the Muslim of community that we have of every other community. If the Mormons were behaving this way, we would just we would be at the end of our patience in in five seconds, right? You would mm-hmm. not have people coming forward, you know, treating you know, Mitt Romney uh, with kid <laughs> gloves, if he stood up and said, well, listen, Mormonism is this wonderful faith and this hasn't, these people have, you know, these are extremists. It doesn't represent us at all. You know, he would get the shit kicked out of him on television yeah. for, for, for not being honest about the problem. And yeah, as he should, I mean, well, not ki- like before anyone accuses me of advocating for violence. Not yeah, no, no, verbally. Yeah. Yes. Verbally. Yes. But I think that it it comes when people are feeling like this is not their territory, which is wrong because absolutely you should have the same moral expectations of everyone. So so you really do them a disservice when you treat them like children. It is what has kept our communities um, held back, right? Because nobody has that expectation of us like we had a sex ed curriculum update in in Ontario where I live and mm. people were freaking out Muslim parents especially were so upset I think it was something like 90 or 90 percent I'm not sure on the figures but a large percentage of people in that area didn't even send their children to school they they did just stop sending them to school so the schools had to eventually water down some parts of the sex ed curriculum which were not extreme at all um but you know people didn't want their kids learning that it is okay to be gay or come from a family where your parents are gay and i wrote this book that was called my uncle is gay and it was used in schools throughout the Toronto area. And then eventually the, the schools got threatened with lawsuits. They were told, you know, I'm a nasty Islamophobe. People called into a radio show and they made this big deal that um, the schools were being uh, like bullies. They were insensitive towards Islam only because they wanted to use a book that spoke to Muslim children with the terminology and characters that were from Pakistan to show them that it's okay to be gay. I mean, and this is perfectly compatible with our curriculum, yet people freaked out and Mm. they bullied the schools into backing up. Now, how do we make any progress when every attempt is just thwarted by even outside forces? The schools could have stood up and said, well, no, this is what our curriculum says and this is what we expect for all our students. So why should we back away? But I don't know, somehow when it's Muslims, they do. Yeah, and that's really at the heart of the problem that Douglas is reacting to. It's just given how flaccid the left has has been on this topic, for and and given how confused people get about you know, the variables of race versus religion. Um, but Douglas is confusing them further by bringing in white Britons and well, their decline. Well, I think he's, and again, I, I really. I haven't heard him emphasize whiteness. What I have heard him emphasize is Christian culture in a way that— Which I, also makes me cringe a little, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, which and, and he and I don't really align there. But, you know, this—it is—you know, I think his point is that much of what is good in the West, at least now, is—has some roots in, in, Christian, in the Christian tradition— and I think he's he's wrong about the degree yeah. that, that 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 is the case. But 
for him, Christian means not uh, Jesus is the son of God and likely to return to save our souls. It's, this is, these are the, the traditions of common law and, and, uh, the, the the kinds of institutions that, that we have in the West that are just so deplorably lacking in the developing world, he that that's all of a piece with what Christianity has now become in the West. And you don't have Christians for the most part, and certainly you. Don't, that's because Christianity's watered down. It's yeah, not because oh yeah. of credit to Christianity. Exactly. Well, you and I totally agree about that. But it, it, I think his. His summary of uh, of the present moment is that the Christianity that you have in Europe, say, so he's like, for, for instance, he wouldn't want to defend the Christianity you find in the U.S. at the moment. Yeah, um, he's talking about this totally desiccated faith, which you know probably believes in nothing other than the beauty of certain buildings and and the usefulness of certain rituals and and the fact that it's nice to have. Um, uh, and nice to have some sense of one's history. Uh, but you see where that becomes a problem is that he says things like, oh, you know, when you talk about trans identity or whatever, and this is the nonsense we'll be talking about when the jihadists nuke us. Mm-hmm. So, and he talks about it as being, uh, you know, indicative of a cowardice underneath a cowardice. I think he said that in your podcast, like when people kind of try to dismantle religion entirely as a whole thing. Like he wants to talk about specifically about Islam. And then he says, you know, just because people are uh, because of jihadism, don't close down Anglican schools. But I think faith schools in general, as as a global society, we should probably work towards closing down faith schools. Because jihadism is bad, it doesn't mean we have to be defensive about Christianity. And this is what I find as well. Like ISIS has become a gift to extremists of other Mm -hmm. sorts, where anytime you talk about anything else, it's like, well, but ISIS, nothing's going to be as bad as ISIS. I'm sorry, it's not going to be. But that shouldn't take away my right to criticize other things. Like people tell me because I identify as feminist that the only time you need to the only time feminism is uh, actually necessary is under Sharia, which is, I think, is nonsense. I mean, you can see from uh, U.S. presidential candidates speaking about women the way that he does, that mm-hmm. feminism is necessary still everywhere, just to different degrees. Sure, women are not being stoned to death in the U.S., but there is sexism in the U.S. Oh, yeah, yeah. And again, I don't think Douglas is would dispute that. I just think, you know, he's now as allergic as, as anyone on earth to political correctness and false equivalencies in terms of, yeah, um, but it's know, not always problems. a false, it's not always a false equivalency. Right. So when he's, when he's saying that we shouldn't shut down Anglican faith schools, that, that worries me. And here's a quote by him on, on Christianity. Hmm. But non-believers like me, well, I assume it's Christianity because he's talking about religion. Non-believers like me should make a concession as well. We should concede that when it comes to the discussion of ideas, morality, meaning, religion does have a place. Rather than dismissing it as some mere relic of our past, we should acknowledge that religion has an important contribution to our future discussion. We may not agree with the foundational claims, but we might at least agree not always and not only to deride 
laugh at and dismiss as meaningless something which sincerely searches for meaning. Oh, mm. I can't. <laughs> well, well, I, I, again, I, I think you know the, the most charitable version of that. You know, I, I, I can I hear how you're hearing it, but um, I mean, there's two things he could also be saying there. One is that there are these core values and experiences that people currently only have religious language for that are only sought in the context of religion. And, you know, 90% of the people who have these values and experiences will be coming to you from a religious context in which they, they have explored them. And if you just say religion is bullshit, you, and that's the end of the conversation, you can't actually meet them where they are and you can't actually find a rational approach to these values and experiences that, that in fact, are, are worth maintaining. And so... But do you think he'd say that about Islam? Well, well no. I, I mean, I think he would say, yeah, insofar as it goes. I, I just think, I mean, the, his underlying concern, uh, which I agree with, is that to talk about all religion as equally harmful at this moment is... Right, to, equally it, is the bad part, yeah, is to be is to be confused about what's going on in the world. So... It's 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 totally unreasonable to get up every day worrying about how Anglicanism is going to destroy the the our common future together because the Anglicans mm-hmm. basically don't do anything and, and that that's true of many other religions they're just they're they're not doing anything that anyone really needs to worry about at least they're not doing it uh, in the yet. West at yeah. least yeah and so to I mean what he's what he is just. Uh, so tired of as I am is to f- is to see these conversations go along these these predictable lines where you say, uh, "Look, there's this enormous problem with extremist Islam. It's bringing us ISIS and and this now you know global and and pervasive concern for terrorism, um, and then to have some so-called moderate Muslim or one of his or her liberal apologists say, yeah, but Christians kill abortion doctors or... Um, it's not even at the same scale, of course. Yeah. yeah. And, but, and, and given that that's where so many people are stuck, right, he just, he's, he's decided to, to kind of pull out the threads a little differently, um, which I understand. I just, you know, I, I don't actually share his respect for, for Christianity, but the, um, you know, I, I do think it's, you know, this is a, a problem that I, you know, tried to grapple with to some degree in my book, Waking Up. I think there are beautiful experiences that people have tended to have in a religious context that mm-hmm. are worth exploring and having, and we need to find rational ways to to talk about them. And, and, and we don't need to believe anything on in, insufficient evidence in order to to value these experiences. So, you know, even, even classically mystical experiences— Mm-hmm. Um, and you know these, these some of these happen in Muslim contexts as well. I mean, I, I don't you know obviously. You, know, you listen to Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, right? Yeah, yeah, which so, is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what's going on there is is absolutely beautiful, and you yeah. know, I, I'm sure if I understood all the lyrics, I would find some things that I, that I, I didn't like. But the the energy of that and the the experience one has singing that way there's just no doubt that is an incredibly beautiful thing and you know i don't think you have to believe anything irrational in order to have that experience but 
many, many, most people do, right? And most people who are absorbed in those kinds of practices um, for, frame their the whole enterprise with, you know, rather starkly delusional religious beliefs. And, you know, if you're talking about Sufis, that's true, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's even more true when you're talking about mainstream Muslims or mainstream members of any faith. And, and so mm-hmm. I, my interest is in, you know, I think there is a baby in the bathwater that can be saved there. And I, and I'm, and I'm there, you know, there are not that many atheists who, who share this concern. Um, you know, I don't tend to want to save it in a way that, that spares people their feelings when criticizing religion, I think it's I think the the need to criticize doctrines that are obviously false or for which there there is just no good reason to believe. I think that is every bit as imperative as someone like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or any other you know you know famous and and intrusive atheist has. But it, it but it's for me there's there's another piece that you know, Richard and and Hitch certainly didn't focus on, and most atheists don't, which is there, there's a, a kind of, there, there are transformations of human intention and attention where, you know, life becomes very different when you, when you look at the present moment being sacred. And, you, and when you look at, uh, when, you, when you try to, to maximize the intensity of your experience of the present moment using various techniques, whether it's meditation or chanting or, you know, fasting or solitude or prayer, whatever, whatever you're doing, or it's psychedelics. I mean, whatever you're doing to, to come out of your habitual mediocrity where you're just grabbing your smartphone and checking your email and then rushing to your next appointment and then falling helplessly asleep at night and getting up just to do it all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a there's more to life than this, and there's even more to life than adding a scientific understanding to to all of that. And religious people, you know, at least in in the in their best moments, have been trying to get a handle on that for thousands of years. And secular culture has not really put forward a clear alternative to the efforts they've been making. And, and it's been an atheist culture has been a pretty just straight up repudiation of all that. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I mean, most atheists, it's been, a, I haven't conducted a poll on this, but I, I, w- I would guess that if you went to an atheist convention, you know, despite all the noises I've made to the contrary on this topic, if you went to an atheist convention in the year 2016 and polled the crowd and asked them, do, do you think that you know that the world's mystics and contemplatives and you know, monks and and yogis and the 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 matriarchs and patriarchs of the various religions, do you think these people were all either conscious frauds or crazy in some sense, or do you think? Some of these people were having the sorts of experiences they were claiming they were having, and that there's a a truly psychologically healthy uh, and positive way to 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 talk about these experiences and 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 unpack their implications. I think most atheists would think, "Oh no, it's just pure fraud and pathology," mm-hmm. and they're wrong about that. 
right? And that's mm-hmm. a pro- and that's a problem, right? And that, and that's a problem I've been trying to to um, digest in my work, at least some of the time. Um, but it's very easy to see how you um, you lose how a rational person at this moment in history can just lose their patience with with everything that's coming out of religion. Uh, because so much of it is obviously so starkly crazy and divisive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you're a good Douglas Murray translator. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, you you put that point in in a way that I can agree with you. But when I read Douglas's articles, I uh, I'm cringing because right. it seems like residual apologia or some kind of tribal attachment to Christian tradition. And, you know, when you look back and see if people were thinking like that when gay rights weren't a thing, then then there would be no gay rights if people were so married to tradition and Christian values, you know? So we can't really become apologists for Christianity just because Islam is so much worse today. That's how I feel. Like, I am happy to spend 95% of my time criticizing Islam and most harshly, but I also don't want people to take away my right to criticize Christianity or Hinduism or whatever else I want to criticize because, I mean, it happens every time. Like, I will spend a solid week talking about Islam and criticizing it. But then one day I'll tweet something about Christianity and people are like, you're a, you're an Islamist, right? you know, right. you still care about your birth religion. Once a Muslim, always a Muslim. And it's getting really tiring. And I was speaking last week, actually, to um, Lucian Greaves, uh, the co-founder of the Satanic Temple, which is a lovely organization. I don't know if you know of them. Uh, no, no, I don't. I mean, I, I know about similar efforts, but I don't know about that particular Group. Okay, well, they're great. So they, they do a lot of legal battles in, in the states. Uh, you know, they fight for women's rights, uh, you know, reproductive rights and things like that. In schools, they they started this initiative called the After School Satan Club, which is upsetting a lot of schools because it technically gives them a right to be there if Christian good news clubs have a right to be there. They handed out satanic uh, coloring books because other people were handing out Bibles in school. But, but so, do, they, I mean, do they actually have some affinity for Aleister Crowley and and all of the 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 older school Satanists? No, no, okay. no, no, no. Okay. Um, and they're completely an atheistic religion is how they describe themselves. Uh, so they're just I, they're they're not, basically trolling Christians by calling themselves Satanists. <laughs> See, that's what I said to him, but he was like, no, no, we have a religious identity. So I don't know if he likes the word trolling, but I, I very much see it as trolling, and I think mm-hmm. it's brilliant. Um, you know, they, they troll— they, troll the Westboro Baptist Church often, but then people attack them and they send them death threats too, a lot, mm. which Facebook doesn't do anything about, but people attack them for not like going to a mosque and d- doing something about Islam. So he gets really annoyed by the fact that they're fighting legal battles with Christian theocrats. Like That is the immediate problem that they're tackling in the States. And that's a bigger problem than Sharia, say, in the States. Mm. So so he's tried to explain that to people, that he doesn't really particularly have a soft spot for Islam or anything, but he's this is just not their jurisdiction. Right, right. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think one issue which we, we've touched on briefly, and, and it's really at the bottom of of all of these judgments that that it's you know somehow indecent to spend any time on Christianity given what's going on in the Muslim world, um, and it's, it explains Douglas's kind of shorthand and lack of patience. I think it certainly explains mine um, when I get in that mood. Uh, it's this. It's the fact that the so-called moderate Muslim community is so abysmally dishonest. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't. It's just uh, there's no reason to speak in in a nuanced way here. It's like uh, the, the most depressing thing that I've encountered since I collaborated with Majid is to see how Majid is treated yeah. among, among so-called moderate Muslims. I mean, it's just it is unbelievable. And and so it's it's just it's like you know Majid is you you may you know, disagree with him on on cer- certain points but he is as reasonable and ethical uh, a person uh, you're going to meet I mean he just he's 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 impeccable in how he tries to have these conversations and he just gets just pure punishment from Muslims who. You know, either think he's a neocon hate monger or, or I mean, it's just like they're not even interacting with the words he writes or, or speaks. And it's, it's pure identity politics. It's pure, and it's pure dishonesty. I mean, these are the people, yeah. you know, the Reza Aslans of the world and the Dean Obadallahs and the, and the Murtaza Husseins. I mean, these are, these people are doing such extraordinary damage to our public conversation about, about Islam and U.S. foreign policy and everything, you and know, all the of these ones, intersecting uh, issues. They're with the loudest megaphones, too. They get all the platforms. Uh, Dahlia Magahid with yeah. the uh, pro-hijab agenda. Actually, it's funny because I was talking to her on Twitter, and I invited her on the podcast. And <laughs> the reason she said she couldn't come is because she has 80,000 followers, that was literally her reason. <laughs> what, 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 I'm not even sure how to interpret that. What, Me neither, yeah. really. <laughs> but I think people were just stunned by that. Like, what? What does she mean? Like, so Sam, thank you very much for, you know, coming on today because I know you have a lot more than eighty thousand followers. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Maybe eighty thousand is, is the crucial number you 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 have to have to not come on the podcast. Perhaps, um, yeah. But he actually, it, she she wouldn't come on my podcast either, and I, she didn't use that also, reason. But oh, uh, what was she, the reason she gave you? Um, I think that I'm an asshole. I think she she just <laughs> she she didn't say it that way. But what what happened is uh, she said something on Twitter, and I you know responded to it and invited her on the podcast. In I mean, I think I initially criticized what she said on Twitter, and then and then once it, the the war on Twitter started. I said, "Well, why don't we talk about this on my podcast?" And and then she never got back, or or she said, you know, she she wouldn't she wouldn't do it. I, f- I forgot this was now months ago, but she uh, she judged I, I think correctly that I'm an antagonist in in a way in the, in the, in the sense that I'm pretty sure what she's saying is dishonest and um. You know, and I don't agree with with anything that is underlying what she's saying, and so we were going to have a war on the podcast. I don't think we would have had a good conversation. Uh, but you know, she's. I think uh, with someone like you, it's easier for them to kind of 
I don't know, silence in a way. With someone like me, she can't pull that same stuff yeah, with me because yeah. I'm not, uh, you know, going to be silenced by that. But you're a white guy. You can't speak to me about hijab stuff. So. No, I know. And she's getting away with it. And it's, it's really annoying. And she's It's get, really frustrating. Yeah. She's getting away with more than that, too, because as... Some, She's Obama's advisor or something. What, she was at one point, like. Yeah, it's hard to know how much, what that means. She claims to have had a hand in his famous Cairo speech, and she's been she's she's held a few appointments. So it's you know that's concerning. Although I think it's probably easy to exaggerate how much input she's had, but she's you know she runs the Gallup Center for. The, the Middle East, you know, the kind of Gallup's Middle East polling department, and the the poll results that she's put forward have been so obviously jiggered to give the most mm-hmm. positive view of Muslim opinion. Um, and I've you know I've spoken about this in other contexts, but it's just you know the questions that weren't asked and the que- and and the questions that the way they interpreted the, the results to the questions that that were asked. I mean, it's so obviously flawed. And and flawed in the direction of, of giving a uh, a rosy picture of of Muslim moderation, that it's um, I mean first it totally explains why the their results are at odds with Pew results and the and the other polling results you've seen, but um, she's just a she just strikes me as a as a, a starkly dishonest person, and the fact that she has as much influence as she has and she can, she can give TED talks and just be celebrated yeah. and she can go on the Daily Show. I mean, if you want to see the problem with the left at the moment crystallized, you just have to look at the treatment Ayan got on the Daily Show from John Stewart versus oh, yeah, what that's been all a you got versus Reza Aslan even exactly. like such warm treatment. And I mean, I disagree with Ayan on some things too, but I do admire her uh, a lot. I think she's made some odd alliances in the past that that don't help. Right. Um, well, but though, again, those have been alliances of necessity in that. Right, but now I feel she's in a place where she has enough influence and stuff that she doesn't need to. Recently, she did that video for Prager U, right, which is a guy that... Uh, oh, is that Den- Dennis blames- Prager? Right. He yeah. hates atheists. And, you know, I think she yeah. even said a line praising Judeo-Christian values. I've heard her have an interview with uh, Irshad Manji on CNN where she suggested that Muslims should convert to Christianity. Like, I just, I'm like, why? Why are you saying yeah. that? Well, I, I think she's, well, I, I understand why she thought this might be a, a good road to go down. But um, I, I think... I don't know if she's backed away from that. I, I sort of forgot to ask her, but she, I haven't heard her emphasize that of late. Yeah. But the, the you know her thinking must be that it's it's even it's much more re- unrealistic to think that Muslims are going to become atheists. You know, she's imagining that, that they need some. There needs to be some bridge between. But now she's talking about reform in her new book, which I think is a definite softening of her yeah of her stance. And I think that really, how do we? Make our message like all collectively, all of us that criticize Islam. How are how do we make it most effective to the people that aren't listening? I know that there's a, a large group that uh, listens to you, but then it's it's the same group. How do we reach the opposite side? That's what I'm always trying to figure out. Yeah, well, you know, it's 
again, someone like Majid is very well placed to do that. And that, that's what has been so depressing about the results among yeah. so-called moderate Muslims. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable to, to see, it's like when you, when you see someone like, uh, I don't know, uh, I'm, I hate to even name these people because I find them, you know, the, the, this person in particular is so repellent. But like, like someone like like Murtaza Hussein's reaction to my book with Majid, right? Yeah. I mean, okay, I understand if you hate me, right? But like, you take Majid's half of that conversation. Um, that is, if 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 you are a Muslim and you think that that Majid is the enemy on the basis of reading that book. You are not a moderate Muslim. I mean, you are a problem for any any Western society or open society you're going to be in, right? But this is the problem. The way the West defines moderate Muslims is they're not they're not moderate at all. They're just defining conservative Muslims as moderate Muslims. Yes, because they're not blowing anything up. They're moderate. Right. <laughs> That's such a really like a low bar. It's really. I wrote I wrote an article for a Toronto publication just this week, actually, in a publication that usually only celebrates Islam and praises Islam. And it came about because I started arguing with uh, someone who works for that magazine because she wrote about how they were having a burkini party, like a burkini ban lift party. Mm-hmm. And how people should go, and you don't have to wear a burkini, but you know it's just to celebrate the the lift of the ban. Like I was against the burkini ban, right? But I'm also against like modesty codes for women in Islam. So people don't understand that position too easily on either side, the left or the right, because uh, for some people they were upset that I wasn't pro ban. Mm-hmm. And some people were upset that uh, I wasn't celebrating the burkini. It's not either or. You can absolutely be against oppressive bands, and you can also be against oppressive clothes. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I feel the same way, and and, and as does Ayan. Um, yeah. But I so but actually, it becomes. Uh, I would just want your view on this because I I don't actually know what I think here. It becomes harder for me. When talking about something like the the niqab or the burqa, I just think that there's something so. First of all, that knowing that there's some percentage of women, you know, even in the West, who are being forced to wear these garments yeah. by their husbands, the ban a ban of them would liberate those women. I mean, if it was illegal to wear a niqab in public, um, you would be doing all the people who don't want to wear a niqab but are being forced to a favor. By just making it illegal. So, or, what do you what do you think or about? Or they would it? be kept at home. What was that? Uh, or they would be kept at home, like right. more. They yeah. wouldn't be allowed out. So, I don't think a, a blanket ban is the place to start. But I do think uh, partial bans are important, especially in places like courtrooms, right? Uh, airports, schools. These these places this shouldn't or workplaces. These places, you absolutely have a right to see people's faces. Did you see that video of a um, a school teacher in the UK who had interviewed for her job uh, unveiled and gotten a job as a, um, I think, an elementary school teacher? Oh, gosh. Uh, but then when she showed up for work, she was in full niqab and insisted that it was her right to be this way. And when they wanted to dismiss her, 
she brought a lawsuit against the 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 school board or the school. Oh, um, and, no, I didn't see that. Yeah, and so, so she was she, she was being interviewed by the BBC, you know, in her niqab, and they were they were trying to get at the bottom of this. But yeah, there's something about hiding your face that is, you know, if not sinister, it, it, it's just. Uh, it's just non-functional. I mean, it's just so socially unhelpful that right. it's, it's I, was, I, I think um, it shouldn't be allowed in those contexts. Yeah. It, I, I don't even see how people expect. We had a case here in, in Toronto where a woman took on the federal government because she wanted to take her Canadian citizenship oath wearing the face veil. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was our conservative prime minister at the time, Stephen Harper, that objected to it. Now, I wasn't a fan of Stephen Harper, but I think he was completely right on this. And people became so politically uh, narcissistic and tribal that just because it's Stephen Harper that's saying that this shouldn't happen, people were grounded, like feminists were rallying for this woman who was... Uh, you know, fighting for the right to veil in a courtroom, in a in a citizenship courtroom where you can't wear any other mask. I kind of wish that I still had to take my citizenship oath because then I'd try to do it wearing a Satan mask or something. Yeah, yeah. But um, well, you yeah. just you just pointed to a problem that is is so widespread, but it's it's something that I I really don't understand from a, a first person side, which is this inability to acknowledge the validity of a point. Because of its source, you know, so yeah. it's just so you you don't like Stephen Harper, and therefore everything out of his mouth, by definition, has to be wrong. And I, this is something that I I don't think I do. I mean, I you know, even someone like Donald Trump, who I think is is just a, an extraordinarily dangerous con man. You know, if he says something that makes sense, that it's just there's nothing in me that's going to fail to recognize that. I mean, it's just because it, you, you just have to deal with ideas on their own merits. The, the source of the idea is totally irrelevant. Um, yeah, and- I mean, I would look for another source for that idea. I haven't heard of Donald Trump saying anything that I agree with a lot, really. Well, no, I mean, that's, that's you know, as expected. But, yeah, when... I mean, I, I did. You know, I but get, if it's like Breitbart or Daily Mail, I would look for another source for that story because well, I just yeah. Well, if you're talking about information and and you're not sure it's credible, yeah. Well, then you care about the source because you know, mm-hmm. so many sources are unreliable. But if you're talking about an argument, if someone says, you know, Donald Trump saying we we should have a temporary ban on Muslims coming into the country. You just have to deal with that argument on its face. It's not, again, it's not a crazy thing to have said. Now, I, I don't actually think it's workable and I, I don't agree with it. But, you know, what I agree with more, which I, I don't think he has said, but another crazy person said, I, at one point in the campaign, Ted Cruz said that we should have a bias toward Christians coming out of the, Muslim, the Middle East in, in this immigrant flow. And... That's a that's a reasonable idea for at least two reasons. One is the, the, you presumably with you know, Christians coming out of Syria and Iraq, uh, you have two reasons to want to to help them. I mean, they, they're they're coming out of the same war war torn area that the the Muslims are coming out of, but 
Two, there's, there, there's a reason to expect that they're even more politically imperiled by ISIS and, and you know, their other neighbors because they're Christian, right? Or they're, you, know, you could say the same thing about the Yazidis. Um, I don't know if I agree because I think Muslims are sometimes the greatest targets of jihadists. And especially if you're like not practicing the right way, according to them, you're an instant apostate. Yeah, well, if no, you're gay I, or whatever. So a, I don't know how but, but fair to, that would be. Okay, but that, but then the, but then the other reason is knowing they're Christian, you know that the chances they're going to be jihadists now now shrink to something like zero. So, um, insofar as you you want to get information on people that makes you think they're not a, they don't pose a threat to your society, discovering that they're Christian or discovering that they're Yazidi or, you know, or Jewish or some other uh, uh, faith other than Muslim uh, Mm -hmm. gives you some positive information that lowers your concern. Now that's just, that's a people lie though on these tests. Well, yeah, no, I mean, that's just the the, the question of just what's difficult, uh, what's difficult about vetting people. But you know, my only point here is that, the fact that Ted Cruz said this is irrelevant. You just have to talk about the merits of the idea. And so many people are are functioning in, a, in the opposite way, where there's absolutely nothing they could hear from a source that they don't like that merits any kind of sympathetic engagement. And and that's you know, that's why our politics is so dysfunctional. And that's why. I mean, even collaborating, you know, it's, it's not like these people understand my views at all, but let's just say they, they did and had good reason to, to not like me. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that Majid did a book with me, which had something, the, so, somewhat the character of a debate, right? It's not like we, we, we came from exactly the same, the same side in the book. Um, it was a conversation. Uh, the fact that he collaborated with me has permanently stigmatized him, right? So there's no yeah. argument that he can put forward that that makes any sense to them. Now, now they were treating him this way before we ever collaborated, but it's it's a it's certain, our collaboration certainly didn't help his his case among so-called moderate Muslims, and that is it's that kind of identity politics and an inability to honestly engage with ideas that is so destructive. Right. I mean, I agree with you on that. I think that people do do that very unfairly sometimes. But then are there any people that you feel you would just n- not want to, like, like say, David Duke? Mm. Can he say something where you're like, you know, yeah, just because it's him, it doesn't mean I'm going to write off that idea or whatever. Is there a line that people could, can cross where they are just written off by you? Well, the, well, the the person could be written off, but the idea, if it's an argument, I just have you. You have to deal with the argument. You know, it's 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 totally possible to be a a genocidal madman and have a reasonable idea about whatever how to install mm-hmm. solar panels on your roof, right? I mean, it's like <laughs> yeah. There's no. So are you going to go to David Duke for that, or are you going to? No, I mean, but then you're talking about collaborating with people and giving them airtime and, and and treating them like colleagues as opposed to adversaries. And that's, yeah, there, there are people mm-hmm. I, I definitely wouldn't want to collaborate with. Or if I, if I were going to, let's say, interview them on my podcast, I would do it in, in the sense of, you know, it's going to be interesting to talk to this 
you know, obviously unethical person and see what happens. So like, I, you know, I, I've said this, right. I said this see, at one I point, think that's... like I, I would, I'd be willing to go into a prison and interview a, a serial killer. I think that would be yeah. interesting, but I, yeah, at no point in that case, everyone would, would understand what was going on. I mean, the, 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 <laughs> not the they, people that hate you, yeah, yeah, right. they will take that out of context and say you're endorsing serial killers or right. something. But. but it would be a, it would be a problem with David Duke. If I had David Duke on my podcast and talk to him about what it's like to be David Duke, people, you know, that that's close enough uh, to normalcy uh, where people would say, well, you know, look, look at this schmuck. He's, he's got this, this KKK member on his podcast and has given, given him a platform. And so that would be a dangerous thing to do, whereas talking to a serial killer wouldn't be really. But I think that if you are having him on to challenge him, what is wrong with that? If you're having him on to just nod along with him or talk about immigration with him, then I'll be like, Sam, why are you doing that? You know? Um, yeah, no, I mean, obviously I would would challenge him if I had him on. But when you when you imagine talking to someone like a a serial killer, it wouldn't be, I mean, obviously there's no reason to challenge him on the ethics of right, killing yeah. people, right? So it's like, a, it goes without saying that you're against that. And so the the nature of that conversation would be just, is there something to learn from this person? Yeah. I mean, how did you get to be the way you are? And what was, you know, just what is it like to, um, is there anything, any wisdom to extract from this this encounter with with evil or or psychopathology? Um, and you know, I, I think that would be fascinating. And I guess one could take the same approach to someone like David Duke or to a, you know, some other racist or you know, someone who's clearly a person whose commitments you totally repudiate, but the conversation wouldn't be one of just telling them over and over again, why they're an asshole. Uh, it would be trying to understand how they see themselves in, in a much more journalistic sense. And I think that would be interesting to do. But, you know, when you're talking about someone like David Duke, it would be more dangerous to do because you would seem to be um, complicit in giving him a, a, a sympathetic context in which to air his views. And that, and that but you know, people if would you're hate. challenging him, why would people think you're sympathetic? Is it is that just a danger anyway of associating with David Duke as a white guy or? Well, I just think you if if you don't, I mean, the question is, you know, what would be challenging enough? And I think it would be, you know, if you use the the model of you know, talking to a a murderer where your your challenge kind of goes without saying, then it would then it would be interesting just to try to get just a try to get into this person's head in a way that would be disarming because you, you, you if you, it's pretty predictable what would happen if you're if you're just challenging this person's racism at every opportunity it's it's going to be a debate about the the merits of racism and but not, i think people could benefit from seeing someone like you dismantle his arguments for instance i'm yeah. not you know, so I think there is value to that. Yeah, no, it, it just it would be a very different conversation, and and I think yeah, yeah, I think if you tried to approach someone who had an ideology like that in a a more sympathetic, journalistic, I mean, almost just like an anthropologist trying to understand how this person you know, got this way, 
you know, or a, or a psychologist uh, slash anthropologist, then you you would run the risk of of looking like you just gave a, a dangerous person a platform, and and um, you know, but I, I'm not really tempted to do to do that. I mean, I, I mean, I, I just because <laughs> no, because it's just it's it's intellectually uninteresting. I mean, it's, it's, so, it's so obvious what's wrong with racism that it, it doesn't, oh, but you don't, it doesn't need don't to be spelled out the, for two hours. The recent atheism alt-right crossovers really making racism cool again. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've had people in my Twitter timeline just tell me that uh, societies where races mix are just not um, workable. And that's the problem. And how do you... How do you know the, uh, these same people are atheists? Do you think that there's there there really there, is there, overlap there, or that you're just hearing from both crowds now? No, I think there is re- there really is overlap there, and, and, and I think that's why you have so many Trump supporting people who are shocked that you're not like them. Yeah, uh, it's a worrying trend, and um, actually, how how we just spoke about how you would if you would speak to David Duke, you challenge him. There's been some like atheist uh, prominent podcasters or whatever that I have been very critical of because they've had guests that do uh, give legitimacy to the concepts of white genocide and all and uh, like um, Gad and mm. Ruben. I know Ruben started off his show really well with you and, uh, you know, had a great interview. But then if you just do a quick Google, I can send you links and stuff, too. He's had on um, Dinesh D'Souza and everyone's Mm -hmm. on Unchallenged. That's the issue. If he had all these same people on and he just pushed back, it wouldn't be a problem. So, so that there's Dinesh. There's a woman called Karen Strawn, who's a Sharia apologist. She's a male rights activist, and she's gone so far into the male rights activism that she thinks that it's the men in Saudi Arabia that are underprivileged. Oh, right. and it's, <laughs> it's it's bizarre. Her reasoning is so absurd. That, she that sounds like an with, SNL sketch. That, that sounds like it can't actually be anyone's view, but it's interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, she advocates for like wife beating too, because she says if we we make it a taboo in society, then it's the poor men who only get to do it when they can't take it any longer, and then it's bad. Oh, so the the argument is that if you beat early enough, <laughs> you don't have to beat so badly in the end. Right, something right. like that. Right. Oh, okay. Um, and then there's Mike Cernovich, who's had a few things to say about you as well. Right. Um, he's an actual rape apologist. Like he thinks date rape is not possible. He thinks uh, the more rape like sex is, the hotter it is. He's tweeted these things out. Uh, he thinks that refugees are not refugees. They're rape fugees. And he was invited on to talk about immigration, you know, like these are not credible sources. There's Paul Joseph Watson, who talks about who talks about white genocide. He actually sent a big truckload of trolls to Dia Khan after she did an interview mm. with BBC, saying that um, I think that uh, these that both sides should realize that things are not going to be the same. I tell my Muslim friends and family that things are not going to be like they are in the old country, and then. Britain isn't going to be just white anymore. So she said that both sides need to compromise that. So he took that as some sort of, you know, 
okaying white genocide. Right. And he's a crazy, like, conspiracy theorist, 9-11 truther. Um, he thinks mm. the Illuminati is controlled by the music industry and just absolute insane views. Like, I can't even... Yeah. Yeah, well, I haven't, not, I haven't seen any of those interviews. I, I really can't comment, but... Um, but yeah. you're not going to see them in the. You're not going to see those views in the interview. But that that's what the problem is because right. these views are never brought up and they're treated like completely credible, normal, regular sources. Right. Well, so because well, that is something that I've worried about, and that's something I got into with Gad Sad on my podcast yeah. with him. And I really appreciated that you did push back on that because Gad was like, "Well, I don't see the problem with Paul Joseph Watson," and then at the same time, he's saying how he can't rest. Unless he calls out people with bad ideas referring to the regressive left. But it's not just the regressive left. It's the alt-right as well. The right is now becoming a problem. Right. And it, but it, it is also just a problem to, you know, once you have a podcast and people keep suggesting good conversations you might have, it's, it's a problem to sort of never know when you have fully vetted somebody. I mean, I, I, the people I've tended to have on my podcast are people who I really don't have to spend any time vetting because I'm so familiar with their work or it's just, it's just not the sort of work that, that, um, where you really need to worry about the, the skeletons in a person's closet, but they're, they're, you know, it, but these are not hidden views. Right. But I mean, just like the, you know, there are people, uh, the way Gad and I got into this conversation was, was through another door where we're talking about, how damaging it is to call someone a bigot or a racist because once you slime them with this accusation, if you do it enough, uh, many people assume that where there's smoke, there must be fire. I mean, they just, they must be a, a racist and therefore you can't in good conscience collaborate with them in any way. And you certainly don't want them on your podcast. And given that this has been done to me, and I, I can only imagine that it's been effective. I mean, the, you don't tend to see the evidence of how effective it is, but you mm -hmm. just you just know, I mean, it's just certain people don't call you and you never knew that they had to, on their side, think that there was a reason not to because they saw Ben Affleck call you a racist on television, right? Um, so I can only imagine it's happening to me because I know I'm doing it to other people. I know, and the example I gave was um, Robert Spencer, Right, which he was upset about. Yeah, so he, yeah, he's totally pissed off at me because I seem to yeah. be dignifying all of the charges leveled at him. But I, I'm not doing that. I was just honestly confessing a problem. I don't have time to go back and watch you know, every YouTube video. That, that, but did that, you see his reactions to Faisal? Calling him right. an imbecilic bigot, how he reflects poorly on you? Yeah, so like, yeah, so I mean, one problem there is that nobody knows who anyone is on Twitter, right? So you, 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 see, you see someone, you, you can see you misread someone's tweet, uh, or you, you, things get off to the wrong, on the wrong foot on social media, and now just perpetually that person is an enemy, and then you, you just can't, you can't fi figure out how to charitably read anything they, they write ever again. Right. And I see that happening to people, and there are people who feel that way about like like Gad was pissed off that that Majid once dismissed him on Twitter, right? And so the the two of them can't get together. Oh, um, Gad! So, so it's you, you have to just I mean, there's something broken about these these tools, and you have to be willing to kind of reboot your your view of a person once you see that you you actually were confused about 
who they were, um, and and people can be slow to do that. But so, like with someone like Robert Spencer, you know, I I've read, I think I read one of his books, you know, a long time ago. Um, Robert and, is my next guest, by the way. Okay, well, that, that, that's <laughs> great. Um, and I see what's been done to him. I mean, I know I know there are ways in which we don't totally align. I think he's a a, a Christian of some commitment and so he sees this this clash of civilizations is to some degree in the terms of a clash between Christianity the the one true religion and Islam um so that from my view is not helpful but you know I don't know I mean he may not be any more racist than I am right I mean he be, he, he may have just been totally unfairly stigmatized um, as a racist, and and you know perhaps you can find out in your next podcast. Yeah, I intend um, to. <laughs> um, but given that it would take me too much time to figure that out, you know, given just how many irons I have in the fire at the moment, that's the reason why I have. I mean, among the reasons why I've just it's easier for me to grab a different podcast guest, right? Yeah, um, and it's. Um, so I was just honestly talking about that, and now he, he he's taken that as as a reason to think I'm perpetuating this injustice, which I'm really I was just I was I was just admitting that I you know I'm doing this to other people by virtue of my time constraints, and I know people are doing it to me by, by yeah. virtue of theirs. And I got your point, and, but and, I don't yeah. know why he didn't. And that and that's what's just that's what's so. That's what why we're in a in a an asymmetric war against political correctness because it it works to call someone a racist enough. But I feel that um, yes, when it's done to you, it is it is really unfair. But that doesn't mean that it's wrong all the time. Oh right? no, there are no. actual racists and bigots that love this topic of criticizing Islam, and that really muddies the water. Yeah. So it. it it lessens the effectiveness of everyone's message. And when Dave Rubin um, and Gad host people that are known just a horrible bigots and they don't challenge them and they nod along with them and they are befriending them and working with them, then, then it, it, it makes it very difficult for for people who are like on the actual regressive left, like how you say that the the right, the far right, is empowered by the regressiveness of the regressive left, right? In the same way, the regressive left is empowered and doubles down on their denial when they see this crossover of atheists slash uh, bigot, you know, right. like a like a genuine crossover. Well, but the but the problem again is you know I don't know whether Dave or Gad knew this person's full backstory if if it oh, is as, as, oh I don't know about Gad but Gad is not willing to listen instead he blocks and Dave is uh, is not willing to engage honestly as well there have been articles written the Sam Harris Reddit is full of these criticisms of Dave and Gad and uh, he, D- Dave Greenwald's critics about this. He thinks that they, or he says that they are trying to deplatform his guests, which is not the case. He thinks that they're trying to trample on their freedom of speech, which is not the case. But, but I mean, if, if this is happening after the fact, if it happens after the interview has been done, 
the the reality could be in in many respects very likely was that when Dave was talking to this person he didn't know all of the things that you think he should have known about this person, right? So he right. Did- so then he should welcome uh, people who know these things a bit more, rather than cut off uh, ties with them or say, "I'm not going to listen to you," or stick your fingers in your ear and go la la la. Really, you know what I'm saying, Dave? Do you see this tweet about rape with your last guest? This is a problem. And his response is, "Well, I do the best I can. I want to find common ground." What does that show? It's like, why are you trying to find common ground with this strange rape apologist? This is not. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, that's just a, a a kind of a liability of, of the job. And I I think it's, yeah. I mean, obviously if if that was his response to that coming to light, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not an adequate one, but the, I think it's an overcorrection for the political correctness where the pendulum swings the other way too right. far. Right, but I can imagine if I, so if I had who are we talking about now Cernovich, if I had Cernovich on my podcast and we had a a conversation that seemed reasonable, I didn't really know who he was and he hadn't yet taken shots at me and we had a totally congenial conversation about I don't know what it would be, you know, manhood and and um, what about immigration? Immigration, or and, you think and, though, if you're inviting someone to talk about immigration, you'd look up their just the, their basic views, and if they involve the word rape, fugee, you'd not want to talk about immigration right, with but, them. Maybe but, oh, no, but no, but there's a there's a uh, there's, a, there's a sympathetic reading of that. I mean, obviously, that's it's kind of a crass thing to say, but if I could, I could well imagine that. If I had him on my my podcast and asked him about immigration, he could give a totally reasonable position and just express the the kinds of concerns that you heard Ion express on my podcast about you know just the the, the prevalence of rape and sexual assault. Uh, right, among but they're refugees. not coming from a genuine, credible sort of place. If you're calling people rape fugees. Right. Well, I mean, that's a very kind of Breitbart way of engaging with the issue. And it's like David Duke maybe might have some point about race that might have some accuracy to the facts at some point. But just because it's David Duke, I'm not going to. Well, I mean, but with David Duke, you just he he wears his stupidity on his sleeve enough that you just you know what you're dealing with. But with someone like Cernovich. Or Robert Spencer or anyone else. But Cernovich like, kind of does. If you if you're if you just look at his timeline, just yeah. look at his Twitter, it's not hidden at all. That's right. the thing. And then when people come to you and show you, like Sam, this is this is not the yeah, guy well, you should be right, nodding well, along with. Sure. Well that that's just you know, that's something that would, would be embarrassing to to but fall then victim repeatedly, to. repeatedly, right. it's a pattern. It's I used to think it was a mistake, like just out of ignorance, right? Because initially I, I went to Ruben like, hey, why do you want to talk to this Pat Condell guy who's a British, like really dull comedian um, who who makes videos about Islam? He, right. Pat Condell himself said no, he doesn't do interviews or something. But I, I mean, I initially approached Dave as a very sincere, I was like, you know, from what I've seen, you're a great ally to ex-Muslims, but this guy is just not, 
he's not he's not all there like he thinks that you know wherever muslims go rape goes well that's not entirely true i mean yeah you can read it more charitably but the way he phrases things you can you can kind of tell when someone is coming from an intellectual place well, so, so like, like this is a great example. So, so Pat Condell, someone who I've never met and, you know, I, I have had no interaction with, and it's been at least a year or more since I've even looked at one of his videos. But when he was first becoming visible with his YouTube videos, um, I saw, I don't know, 10 of them over the course of whatever it was that, that first year. You know, they're very. He's he's very articulate. He's he's very well spoken. He obviously writes these and in, in advance and lays down a very tight, you know, five minutes of audio against Islam and against political correctness. And so, my file on Pat Condell is basically purely positive. I mean, every mm-hmm. every every one of his videos I've seen, I thought was great. Um, again, I haven't seen anything. It's, it's, it may have been years since I've seen a Pat Condell video. Um, and yet I've heard, you know, the kinds of aspersions against him that of the sort you just, uh, gave and, you know, so he falls into the category of person where, you know, I don't know what he said when I wasn't listening and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I don't need the, it's just, it's, there, there may be a mess there that I don't want to interact with. and I don't want to get tarred by association. See, you're careful then you're not promoting people without knowing them. Yeah, but, I, but I, I could easily then, I could easily stumble into the circumstance where I, I do, do it inadvertently. Like Fifteen times in a row. Right. Well, but again, I don't. I don't, I don't podcast. You know, I don't do this nearly as much as Dave does, or or I think even Gad does. I mean, I've only done my my fiftieth podcast with Ion. But Gad explicitly told you that there is nothing wrong with Paul Joseph Watson when it is out there. For the world to see what's wrong with this guy, he thinks right. the hurricanes are conspiracies, and I mean, Mickey Mouse ears are signs of some sort of conspiracy. Kanye West naming his child is a conspiracy. Is it's it's insanity. Right. So what Gad's reasoning was, well, you know, he has a bad reputation, but I didn't really see anything that worries me, um, and yet I call out bad ideas, but. This guy talking to this guy exposed me to a really large audience, and that really mm. benefited me. But I mean, really, is that how low the bar is that you just want to be exposed to an audience of conspiracy theorists just because there's a larger number? Yeah, you know, there may not be a great solution to this problem because it's, it's you know, you don't know what you don't know, and 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 there's two different. Obviously, there's there's having someone on, on your show is one thing going on their show is another. And, um, and if you, if you want to speak to a, a hostile audience or an audience that you want to, to reach because you, you, they're, you're pretty sure they're wrong about everything of consequence. Um, it can make sense to just go into the lion's den and talk to, to, um, you know, I would like, you know, if, if Rick Warren invited me to go speak at his mega church, that but would, you know what you're going into. Yeah, I mean that would be an interesting exercise, and and you know I might well do that. Uh, and yet, you know, w- w- what does that say of me that I'm I'm now collaborating with Rick Warren or or? No, I mean I think that this is the difference, right? If you go in knowingly and you know that you d- you're not going to nod along to every crazy thing that he says, 
Um, and you're not going to legitimize him generally. Everybody knows that you might have some disagreements. Right. But That's the, but the, the problem But the problem you're running into with, with people like Dave and Gad is that it sounds like, again, I haven't seen these interviews, but it sounds like these people are not saying the crazy things in those interviews. You just, you just want them to but be held accountable allowing... for You want them... You want Dave and Gad to hold these people accountable for things they, they've said in other contexts, which, which you think they should be aware of. But, you know, whether they were aware of them or not, I don't, uh, I don't know. And, and you really can only demand that they challenge stuff that comes out in the, uh, in the course of an interview. I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't think so. And, and this is what you, you said to Gad about talking to someone like that. You said talking to someone who you should really challenge because they've said some pretty divisive stuff in the past, mm. but they are just not saying it on your show. Yeah. And no, you're it, talking about racial IQ differences and you find out they're a grand wizard in the KKK and that's only the tip of the iceberg. You see, this is the problem. No, I, I totally admit the problem. It's just, it's a... It's one for which I don't have a good solution apart from, you know, doing as much homework as you can do and and then just relying on on luck. You know, I mean, I could easily see not, getting the problem unlucky. is an ignorance on their part. It's not that they are not aware because they have been made aware time and time again. They just don't think well, but these they, are big enough right, things but, to challenge. But they're they're made. It sounds like they're often being made aware after they've already done this interview, and now they're now you you could imagine that. There, but if they were to at least acknowledge it after, even right. that, oh yeah, that's a pro then then you could see that they're they're genuinely oh they're opposing the idea. But right, right now, it seems like they only will oppose anything on the left. So, you know, downplaying someone that or presenting them in a positive light who advocates wife beating but just didn't do it on your show. Um, so you present right. them in the best light possible and open them up to a whole new audience, help them sell books or whatever. Cernovich talked about how many books he sold um, after being on Dave's show. And then Dave right. even like quoted an article uh, from the Daily Beast where they wrote about how upsetting it was that Fox News invited on a rape apologist. And then they gave examples from his uh, articles about how to avoid a rape conviction, a really disturbing uh, Man, hmm. Dave quotes that article and says, oh, he's rattling cages like this is not this is not rattling cages. This is not progressive left that would be opposed to rape apologia, you know? Well, well um, maybe you'll get Dave on your show and you can you can hold his feet to the fire. I think um, I would love to, but he's yeah. blocked me, Sam. <laughs> he's blocked me. Gad's blocked me. Well, he'll. And He'll, he'll, when when this podcast comes out, uh, he'll uh, he'll notice it coming out on my Twitter stream, and and you'll see if uh, you know. I mean, I think and, and I think those conversations would would be useful. I think it's I mean part of what part of the problem is that I mean actually this cuts both ways. I mean there's something about ha not having face to face interactions. I mean the, the fact that so much of this is happening in writing or on social media, which is the worst form of writing mm -hmm. um it allows you to demonize people and or or misunderstand people or not give them the benefit of the doubt and and then just you know make enemies or fail to form alliances and so that's that's obviously problematic um but there's a, this flip side which is face-to-face -face interaction allows you to sit to sympathize with people or at least 
give them a um, an overly fair hearing because of just how natural it is to be a good person, even in the presence of a bad one, you know, or even mm-hmm. in the presence of someone who you really should just recognize is a is you know dangerous on some level. So just imagine what it's like to be in a social situation with a a known murderer or I mean you see you some you see some of these interviews. I mean it's like you see the you see the person you know, laughing at a at a, a evil person's joke, right? You know, it's just Well the, yeah. It's very and I faced this before myself because I interviewed a non offending pedophile. Mm-hmm. And it was very challenging because I did not really know how to how to act, or I, I felt really oh, sick. I think, but I think this was. Do you have audio of this, or was it just uh, text? No, it's just yeah. written. Yeah, I think I, saw, I did see that. That that was fascinating. But what, so you you did this in person or or on the phone? No, just over email. And okay. uh, uh, he was like making light of a lot of things that are very serious, like right. his, what they call age of attraction, I think. And he would put little winky faces and, oh yeah, I'm attracted to five-year-olds. And I mean, it was so hard for me to just sit through that interview and email him back and forth and back and forth and not just cut off all ties with him because. But just imagine, what? imagine if it happened in person and you found him to be a, uh, a warm, charismatic, you know, not obviously off-putting guy. Um, you know, all of your, your, you know, all the the appropriate social cues of a friendly encounter would be given, and you know that that's that's but you so seductive. Catch me like, ru- like ruffling his hair. Or- no, but you but you still you still might come away feeling like if if if. The the end video or audio product might just be, man, Ina just sat down with like the worst person on earth and didn't criticize him at all. You know? Oh, no. Like that was always consciously on the f- like front of my mind. Like there was no way that I could not criticize him every step of the way and make him aware how disturbing right. he is to me. I'm just saying because it's harder. It, it could be harder in person. And it's something that. It may be harder, but it certainly wouldn't come off as a completely friendly interview because of how disturbing that experience was. But this is the thing. That's why I can I can understand some level of it. Like I have interviewed Tommy Robinson before Dave probably even knew who he was Hmm. on G Spellcheckers podcast. And uh, we had a perfectly lovely, friendly conversation. We talked about how, you know, if we were ever in the same part of the world, we'd go for a beer together. And I think I'd still go for a beer with Tommy because I, I don't see the problem with that. I think that reaching out to someone like him could possibly make him less extreme in his views. But, but see, so again, here's another person you mentioned who I've heard, you know, pre-stigmatized, I mean, so who's, who's come to me, you know, out of this cloud of, of being called an extremist or a racist. Mm-hmm. Um, but the only thing I've actually seen from him directly were his interviews with, I can't remember Dave. if it was Dave and maybe also Gad or maybe it was just Dave. Yeah, um, no, I but, think they both did it. But yeah. you're not going to see him called out on any of his things but over it, there. But 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 so but everything he was asked to represent in real time in that interview, I thought he did 
in a way that that I couldn't find fault with. He seemed totally right. reasonable. and He is. That's what he does, though. He gave a speech as well, I think, at Oxford, uh, and and it was it was brilliant. Tommy is also very charismatic and speaks very well, and he knows exactly what to say to which audience. And that's why you have to call him on the things that he's saying that are contradicting his other things. Like when he says, I separate Muslims from Islam. And no, you don't, Tommy, because you call for deporting Muslims. And it's just... Yeah, well, and, and he, he should time. be asked about that, no doubt. Well, did you ask him about that when you were No, on? because he hadn't said it then. So so when, when I spoke to him was like two years ago, maybe, or three, two, two, I think it was. And that was the time when he had quit his extremist organization, mm. the EDL, and he was working with Quilliam. And it all seemed like he was he was doing well. So I wanted to reach out to him and be like, you know, that's great. And let's uh, build this bridge. So the way that I spoke to him was much less challenging, even though it was still challenging, uh, than I would if I spoke to him today. So right. it was a different time. But since then... He's done and said a lot that, you know, he, he's retweeted white supremacist accounts. He's talked about, you know, that, that white genocide thing is a real red flag. Whenever someone talks about white genocide, it's not, it's mm. like, you know, there's something up with that. Yeah, the, um, the, the white genocide meme is a strange one, although a, a related one, which strikes me as as not strange, is the... the I don't know how people refer to it, but the the fact that even the even fundamentalist Christians uh, in the West seem not all that concerned or cognizant of the the fate of Christian communities in Muslim majority countries. I mean, like the, the the persecution of Christians in the Middle East, you would think would be a much bigger story in the West, and it's I mean maybe maybe it's a huge story. Once you go through the looking glass among, become, on the right wing, but it's, it's become co-opted by this far right narrative. So then I think people that are, don't identify as far right stay away from it, which is what's so unfortunate because mm -hmm. it's a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. But so, I, I, but I would, I would, <laughs> I'm surprised. I mean, maybe I'm just not hearing it. I'm not on the channels where it would be broadcast to me, but I don't even hear Christians, even fundamentalist Christians harp on it all that much and it's it's kind of surprising to me i would think that would be that would be incredibly energizing to the to the right wing in um in the u.s in particular i mean i've i've seen it like they wear their the the t-shirts with the the arabic letter n which was mm. used to symbolize christian houses i think to to them or kill them like so, so they do. They 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 write. They wear the Arabic word kafir. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's ruined a lot of nice words for me. Like kafir is a lovely right. word, but I you know I wouldn't wear a T-shirt that says says kafir on it because it automatically takes you to the Christian right. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. my parents would be so pleased that nobody puts me off of criticizing Islam more than actual anti-Muslim bigots. <laughs> are, are, are your parents still religious? They, they've always been like a very mild kind of Muslim. And, and, and I grew up in Saudi Arabia. So my mm. dad is like my secular 
role model. He always talked about how he disagreed with the Saudi. We're Pakistanis mm-hmm. uh, ethnically, so we, we didn't really get to mix with Saudis because life is very strange there. You, you're you're raised in compounds for the most part. Foreigners are, and Saudis aren't allowed into the compounds. My school was a Western school. Saudis were not allowed in. Only I think one princess was given permission to to go to our school. Mm. So I never really interacted with Saudis till I was at least 18. It was there, but I didn't know any Saudis. Huh. So did you learn Arabic or? No. And so did you, is your first language Urdu or, or um, did you? A bit of both Urdu and English. Uh-huh. I mean, I grew up speaking English huh. and my accent isn't from Canada. It's from Saudi Arabia. This is how I spoke there. Interesting. Um. And, and you never lived in Pakistan? Uh, I've lived there for uh, like a couple of years, and it's mm. been the worst experience of my life. Mm. So I would always get annoyed at my Pakistani relatives who would like badmouth life in Saudi because a lot of us had it really good in Saudi because of the compounds. Like I had a very secular upbringing. People in our compound used to bathe topless by our swimming pool. Mm. Um, and... I had heard rumors about like the Sharia punishments and public beheadings, but I never actually knew it was real. Wow. And I only realized how strange growing up in Saudi Arabia was till I came to Canada and went to university. And I was like, you know, telling people and they would ask me all these questions and be completely surprised at how open-minded I am and how I was dressed. And, you know, it's, right. it's interesting. It's a weird existence. So my dad has always been my secular role model. He always criticized the Wahhabi Islam. He always was like, my mom knew a woman that was like a strict hijabi. And she would always demand that there be like a partition put up in our living room when she was coming over. And my dad would be so annoyed. Hmm. And he talked about what bullshit this is and how this was never the case. And who are these people spreading this among South Asians? And we had like a picture growing up of a, woman in a burqa that was carrying a bird in a cage and that was up on one of our walls and I just remember looking at that you know yeah so yeah well that's uh that's great you have you have a dad like that and that's not obviously not the the universal experience of Muslim girls but it's um, no, it's always great all. to hear yeah, my parents are like they they're sad that I'm not religious, but it's more like a, oh, we knew it was coming and we'll have like the occasional uh, dinner table argument. And it's funny because liberal Muslims are the funniest and the most frustrating people too. Like I love them dearly, but so we have a family barbecue and my brother brings light beer to it because uh-huh. Lesser alcohol content means lesser haramness. Less sin, yeah. Well, You're so silly, you know? I had a relative I was walking with when he was drunk after a party and we stopped to get pizza. And he started yelling at the guy for not having halal pepperoni. Uh-huh. And I'm like, look at yourself. You can't walk straight. You're drunk. And you're asking for halal meat. Like, what kind of... what? There's so much of that going on. That's what frustrates me about liberal Islam. It's hard to have a coherent worldview in the end. Yeah. Uh, Especially especially at one in the morning and you're drunk and you want some pizza. Yeah, yeah. And then you're looking for like halal pepperoni. Very strange. But what do you think of this SPLC 
list. Oh, well, so for then those... why are you persecuting Robert Spencer? Yeah, for, for those who um, don't know about it, the, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which until somewhat recently was a, a great organization that took on the KKK and other white supremacist groups in the U.S., just declared Majid and Ayan, along with, I think, 13 other people to be anti-Muslim extremists. And obviously in the case of Majid and Ayan, it's a completely insane and even dangerous accusation. Um, as far as the other people on the list, Robert Spencer was also on the list, and I guess Pam Geller was, and a few other people. And I, you know, again, I can't judge the merits of all of those inclusions or not. Um, I think, you know, the, the existence of the list is probably objectionable on its face because it, it suggests that, I mean, g- given the the other work that the the law center does, it suggests that people like Pam Geller are the equivalent of the KKK right now. I, again, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know what Pam Geller has said in her worst moments. Um, I'm prepared to believe that she is uh, not identical to me in, in her treatment of, of Islam. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't know, you know, and you'll find out from, from Robert, you know, who he is, if, if you, if that's possible. And if there's any distance, it would be interesting to ask if there's any distinction between him and Pam, um, or if, or if there's anyone who merits this accusation of being an anti-Muslim extremist, who is that person, right? So, well, like, I think that people are making the mistake of using the same scale as Muslim extremists when, I mean, I completely disagree with this decision of putting Majid and Ayan on there, but I don't think it means to equate them with Muslim extremists because the scale is entirely different. No, there, no, there's, yeah, I think that... On the one hand, there's beheaders, and these guys are obviously not violent, so... Right. Well, I mean, the case of in the case of Majid and Ayan, it's it's totally reprehensible in that it completely I mean, is. I mean, these are these are on the these are the most ethical, most enlightened, most moral. Um, you know, in, in in Ayan's case, she's a an apostate and a victim of Islamic extremism. Right. In Majid's case, he's a a reformer and a victim of Islamic extremism, and and so they're. These people should be recognized as allies. Now, when with, with someone like Robert Spencer, um, you know, I'm prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt, uh, as I did on my podcast, and just say that mm-hmm. I don't know who he is, right? And so it's, you know, but even if I weren't, even if I thought, okay, Robert Spencer is um, a a bigot in some sense, um, I would be, I would find it uh, very surprising if he were the sort of person who should be grouped with the KKK or a neo-Nazi uh, militia in the U.S. And that is what, right. that's what the Southern Poverty Law Center is tacitly doing by creating that list because that's the kind of group they have gone after in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, so, and again, I, I don't know who else was on that list or I've, I've forgotten. So do you but, think anyone is worthy of being on that list? Well, yeah, I'm sure there are. I mean, I'm sure there are neo-Nazis who are now just focused on Islam, right? Or, or there's, mm-hmm. you know, um, the member, members of the KKK. But it would be interesting to know from Robert, who clearly feels that he has been unfairly attacked as a racist and a bigot, if there's any prominent person who he differentiates himself from, who who does have that problem, you know, for whom that accusation is 
to one or another degree warranted. And I don't know, I don't know if there's any daylight between him and Pam Geller or, mm-hmm. or so, you know, I don't know who to put further on the spectrum than her, but I just know that, you know, like I mean, given, given my PR problems on this issue, it would be dumb for me to be on a panel with Robert Spencer and Pam Geller, right? Now that, yeah. may, that, that may be totally unfair to them, you know, but it's, it's just the reality. Uh, and I know there's someone who feels that way about me. Right. And it's unfair. Right. To me. Everyone draws the line differently. There's someone who feels that way about me. And there's someone who feels that way about, you know, ever like anyone that even mildly criticizes anything to do with Islam. But that doesn't mean right. that there are no people that criticize Islam that aren't doing it for unfair reasons or Islam is, I guess you could criticize it for whatever. But criticizing and generalizing Muslims is where the issue is, I think. Yeah, you can criticize yeah. them for the beliefs that they hold specifically, the Muslims that hold those beliefs. But then to assume that a large group of possibly diverse Muslims, everyone will hold these pro-Sharia views or, you know, want gays to be dropped off from buildings, thrown off of buildings. I don't think that's fair because I know a lot of Muslims and I, I understand that I come from a very liberal Muslim family and all, everyone I know is probably on the very liberal scale. Everyone drinks and whatever, but I don't, I don't know anyone that the, actually I know more about scripture than any of my Muslim relatives mm. and they have trouble distinguishing between me and Trump, which is really, right. really right. upsetting to me. But that, but that's because, a, that's a problem, but that, that says something very worrying about the Again, for lack of a better word, moderate Muslim community, because yeah, they can't handle criticism. Yeah, I mean that 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 is, it's just it, it's so dangerous because you know if if someone like me who's honestly engaging with with these ideas and who who really is is just not at all motivated by a concern about skin color, um, mm-hmm. I mean there's zero zero of that in me. Um, uh, if, if I can't get through, I mean, forget about me. If Majid can't get through to mm-hmm. the, the Murtaza Husseins of the world. And, and, and again, mm-hmm. it's like when I, when I put, when I reference someone like Murtaza or Reza Aslan, um, I mean, two truly despicable people. I mean, I think these are just bad people. These are not, it's not just that we disagree about things. I think, I mean, I, I haven't, I've only met Murtaza in, you know, online and seeing what he's written. I've met Reza, you know, several times in person. He's just not a good person. He's not an ethical person. He's a, he's a genuinely devious, self-centered, narcissistic person. Um, and I wouldn't say that about all of my antagonists. I mean, there, I, I, there's room for misunderstanding. There's room mm-hmm. for, for, for spirited differences of opinion. Um, and there are and and they're you know really stark differences of opinion which make collaboration impossible. But I would I still wouldn't say that this you know this person is a bad person. I um, mean you know, some of the religious demagogues I've debated you know don't didn't never struck me as bad people. Uh, they're just you know they're just totally deluded by their their religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you know Reza and and Murtaza are just awful people. But. <sighs> The the issue is that so so like when I when I hold them up as examples of of the the problem of of just not engaging with Majid's uh, reform efforts, for instance, 
um, these are these are not examples of people who who I think believe a lot about Islam. You know, I don't I don't think you know I I don't know what Murtaza believes, and I don't know what Reza believes. I I, I certainly doubt Reza believes much of anything. You know, he strikes me as a totally opportunistic, cynical person <laughs> who's, you know, whose who's faith, such as it is, probably has more uh, akin to you know, kind of a new age, you know, spirituality than, than anything that, that a, a, a devout Muslim would tend to recognize. You know, who, who does he think he's talking to when he's praying? If he's praying, I, I have no idea, but I, I doubt he thinks... It's the God of the Quran who's prepared a hell for infidels. You know, I, I really don't think he's mm-hmm. he's that sort of religious Muslim, um, and that just makes him an even greater asshole, right? Because he's, <laughs> he, he, you know, he's someone who should really get what Majid's about, right? And the, and the same would be true of Murtaza, uh, and yet their reaction is to demonize him as an Uncle Tom and yeah. a, a neocon and. You know that, and they treat Ion the same way, and right, porch monkey, and yeah, and, such awful things, and it's a, slurs, and racial s- slurs, basically. So there, so the fact that there are so many, probably non-believing Muslims or barely believing Muslims who will play the game this way with just this the, the ugliest form of identity politics. That's, I mean, that's the problem we have to somehow crack um, because they, again, this is, this it's is tribalism, really. Yeah, and it's right. It's, it's and no one. This is a point I, you know, eventually make every time. Although if you catch me in in the wrong paragraph, I won't have made it. Um, nobody is suffering from this more and will continue to suffer from this more than Muslims. You know, right, the, the, the exactly. world over, right? This is, this is a disaster for mu- for Muslims first. But this is the thing they they're not tr- like so many people are just not trusting what you're saying or what I'm saying or what Majid is saying, uh, and because of well, you most of all because of who you are, yeah. and it doesn't yeah. matter what you're saying really and how good your intentions are. Like I think I can I can totally see that your intentions are great and you know you you do not strike me as the types of people that I, that I'm critical of even atheists like like Murray or Gad or Ruben and and I hope to be mistaken about them all but I, I think in order to discover that I'd have to have some sort of engagement or conversation and not Stick yeah. fingers in the yeah. ears and avoid it at all costs. But yeah. well, well, I th- uh, honestly, I think you are mistaken about them all. I just think you have encountered them in different moments and in diff- with uh, different job descriptions. And uh, again, it's impossible to say everything you think in every soundbite or in every even hour long treatment of a subject. And so it's it's very easy for someone to sample something I've said or written. And no, ju- no, I get that, and, but and that's not how that. I was trying yeah. to do it with Murray. Like, I understand how you've been misrepresented. I'm trying to actually represent Murray's views accurately. I don't want to engage with a straw man of what he's saying yeah. because that's ineffective. Then there's no point to it. I want to give the strongest argument as possible, like represent him accurately and then disagree with it. Right, right. Well, so it's not my intent to misrepresent him. It's just that the more I read, the more worrying it is 
to me. And it's not like, uh, like a Pamela Geller type of worrying. It's just doesn't come off very nicely or it doesn't come off as effective. Now that's a different problem from Gad and Ruben. Uh, Ruben, who I think is unfortunately, um, an opportunist. I don't know if he believes that these are his friends now, the, the old right, or or if he's just playing to an audience that happens to be supporting him and paying him pretty well. You know. Yeah. No. I. I don't think. Um, again. You know. I, I think Dave. And I don't want you to answer that either. Because I mean, you can if you want. I don't want you to feel like you have to answer for them because I. You're not responsible for them at all. Well. Well. No. But it just in so far as I think. You have the wrong idea about them. I think it's useful to to say so because um, you know D- Dave uh, seems to me to be an extremely ethical person who would check all the right boxes. I mean, in terms of you know gay rights and women's rights, and I mean, and, oh no, and, I think you're so wrong about that. Okay, well, so, but I mean, so then that's that's something that I think you're wrong about, and I, I wouldn't know how to. Uh, resolve that apart from you know getting you know getting him on your podcast or you on right. his and and but how do you why do you think I'm wrong when I've shown you like a, a list of the people that well I just well, well, to call out well I do, I just think he it's it's what you're reading into the refusal to call them out I mean so there's what could be functioning there is he has a very journalistic agenda or a much more journalistic agenda than I do or than you a do. A journalistic agenda with a bunch of crazies. Well, just, only. I mean, well, no, well, it was not only crazies. I mean, he's, well, it's he's like had the good occasional, people on there. Occasional, yes. But every time they are on there now, like Lawrence Krauss was on there and he got right. so much hate from Ruben's audience for being a cuck or whatever, right, right, right. you know? Like, well, well, you, this but, is the audience Ruben is cultivating. Okay, these but, pepes. but we're, you know, we're, we're, we can all be... Uh, impaled on that sword because you know, like my audience, you know, I I can't believe the number of Trump supporters in my audience. I think it's only, again, I think it's only about twenty percent, but they're the but most vocal twenty percent. I was hoping that you would do it earlier, but you did it. Well, I, well, I, but I I haven't shaken them off, and 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 I don't know, um, and I don't know who else is in that audience, right? I could have all kinds of people that I haven't discovered who have unsavory of commitments. I mean. I'm not saying that we're all responsible for our entire audience. Like I have a lot of anti-Muslim bigots in my audience because they love this. Um, oh, ex-Muslim criticizes Islam right. thing. So whenever there's like an ex-Muslim hashtag, like ex-Muslim because you see so many Trump supporters retweeting it and following all the ex-Muslims. But you like, I will occasionally make it a point to tweet out things against anti-Muslim bigotry. So so that way, they automatically expose themselves. They're upset right. by any... Like, I did an interview with a Canadian radio show where they described me as an as a critic of Islam who loathes anti-Muslim bigots. Now, that's a term that's hard for people to understand because it seems contradictory, but I don't think it is at all. And Richard Dawkins tweeted it, and he was like, I love this phrase, and I wish that more people understood it. And he got so much hate under that tweet. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, it's it's hard to parse because it's easy to be absolutely fed up with Islam at this point. Totally. I mean, but you it, see it, what it's doing is that these guys are taking over, and they are making people like me who would be 
good critics and good allies in criticism of Islam back off and now we're spending our time defending ourselves, defending our existence in the West. We shouldn't be sterilized. Uh, you know, this is a waste of time. This doesn't help anyone. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, I just think it's, it's unfortunate that it's hard for allies to necessarily recognize one another in in the in this particular trench because social media is broken and you know as i said you know like gad and majid can't even recognize each other you know and you know i i can't resolve it like i on my podcast i, I can't majid get gad. right on that though right, well, I, well so but but again it's just it's i think it's much more i think they could they could have a a totally reasonable conversation and not discover any real basis for difference. I mean, I have, I didn't, you know, I, I don't think I agreed with everything Gad said on uh, mm-hmm. on my podcast, but I didn't discover anything that I found objectionable in what he said. Um, and so it just, it, it, there was no, no we, but we debated a few points, but. On Twitter, uh, there's a lot of things that he says, you know, that are very anti-refugee, um, to a point where he's calling it like a suicide, or he, he he'll like pander to Bill O'Reilly. Um, he's he, anti-feminist yeah. to a great degree, where it's like a straw man of feminism. Again, but you see, you're catching people. I mean, that's part of his shtick at the moment, uh, and this is this may be the problem you have with Dave as well. Their their full time business has been at least in terms of their their presence on social media uh, has been to go up against the regressive left or social justice warriors or, you know, but you can PC see culture. how that becomes overdone, right? Where yeah. college kids are now the biggest problem in the world and pedophile defenders. Yeah. Feel. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's but, annoying but, it, and it's really inaccurate too. Of but, course it's a problem. SJWs it, are a problem, but it's a, it, it's not a trip. I mean, that what's happening on college campuses is not a trivial problem, and it's, no, it's one I that mean, many people are unaware of. So, for instance, like when I had Jonathan Haidt on my podcast, he said, and th- and this is something that was news to me. He said, if you ha- haven't been at a university since even as as late as two thousand thirteen, I think he said it was, um, you really have no idea the scope mm-hmm. what the scope of the problem is. I mean, he he's just. I mean, he was he was communicating a very pessimistic view of the state of what's going on in, in on college campuses. Of course, and but if you can, it's new. Call, it's a new problem that that people are not aware of. If you can call that out, but you downplay a rape apologists, then that's a problem. You know, I, I feel that mm. both things need to be called out simultaneously. Like social justice warriorism is very bad. It's so bad, and they ruin the causes when they are like like I came across an anti-racist who was saying she doesn't want mixed race. She doesn't approve of mixed race relationships. And someone asked her about that. And she's like, no, 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 it's okay if like different people of color will mix. 
but nobody should be in a relationship with white people. And then another Muslim blogger wrote a blog about why I don't date white people. And I mean, these are are absolute issues, and I call them out time and time again. But I'm also not going to do that at the cost of, ah, you know, racism isn't an issue, and it's nothing is ever racist. There's the everything is racist crowd, and then there's the nothing Mm -hmm. is racist crowd. Then there's the everything is sexist crowd, and then there's the nothing is sexist crowd. Yeah. And in between that, there's a space. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the space you want to be in, no doubt. Right, and I feel that Gad and Ruben have gone too far to the other side. Right. Well, it, it could it could be in terms of their public work that that may be the case. And again, I'm I'm speaking somewhat from ignorance because I haven't seen even anything close to the majority of of their. Their interviews, but in just in, in terms of my interactions with them privately, um, that's not going on at all. So that that's at least uh, you know. And again, I mean, these are not people who I've spent a tremendous amount of time with, but it, mm-hmm. you know, I've I've um, it's just you know, insofar as you can get the measure of another person's mind by having dinner with them, uh, yeah. it, it's uh, th- that's certainly my view uh, of them. Um, and I, it's just so easy to see how things get off on the wrong foot, and it's there's just there's so much blood under the bridge at that point that you just can never get you you can never find a basis for a fresh start with somebody. And you know, I've had people tell me that uh, Reza Aslan's a really good person, and I like oh, like they're. People who I we know people in common. They're people who, mm-hmm. who have had dinner parties and they've had to decide whether to invite me or or oh, Reza no. and his wife, right? Um, and uh, you know they insist that that you know Reza is a, a great guy. Now I'm actually prepared to believe that that in in the given the right start with him, given the right uh, exposure to him, he can show up as purely a great guy, right? Um, now, I've seen enough of him to know that he's actually not a great guy. I mean, he's, he's actually not. He, I mean, there, there are people who are unethical. There are people who are actually mean, just really mean-spirited. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I have this sense about, um, I certainly have the sense about someone like Donald Trump for, for slightly different reasons. But it's like, I, I, know, I now know I've never met Trump, but... And I'm not aware of knowing anyone who knows him personally. I've, not, I've since met someone who actually worked for him for, uh, or whose sister worked for him for a very long time. Um, so I have some kind of like secondhand impre- mm-hmm. impressions of his ethics. Um, but in terms of what he said, you know, now ad nauseum and how he said it and the kinds of stories that, you know, credible stories that have come out about how he's run his businesses and how he's interacted yeah. with people, uh, people who've had less power than him, most importantly. Um, it is just patently obvious to me that he is not an ethical person, right? He is a dishonest person. He's a he's a, he's a, a deeply self-absorbed person. Um, he's a person who has contempt for weaker people, uh, and and you know this is not the kind of person you want running the civilized world. Right. Um, and this is irrespective of, of all the other problems with him in terms of his lack of knowledge about the world and, and the kinds of policies he would support. And, you know, someone like Reza Aslan, uh, in my dealings with him, you know, I know enough about the guy to know that he's actually not an ethical person. Um, 
uh, and that you'd you'd have to get lucky with him to find the nice guy. And there's a very different guy in there. And I, I frankly feel that I know this about several of my other very public antagonists, like you know Murtaza or Glenn Greenwald. Um, yeah. Whereas you know someone like Rick Warren who I debated once and who who's a religious demagogue and who I, I probably share much less of a worldview with, you know, who knows? He could, he might be a bad person, but I certainly didn't get that from him. Yeah. Right. And he could be, he could be an incredibly ethical person who's just stuck in, with his Christianity. Yeah. Um, and that's, those are, those differences really matter. Right. I mean, it's, it's like, if, of you, if you're encountering someone who's, who's actually a liar uh, and, a, and a very cynical manipulator. That's a that's a problem, regardless of 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 you know how much you may share their worldview. And I just in in my experience, again, it's, it's a limited one, but my experience of of these guys who you are worried about, Dave and Douglas and Gad, I think they are actually very ethical people who are playing a game in a way that you you know you're you think is. Um, uh, offensive or or has blind spots that you think are consequential and and in some respects you, you, may, you may be right about the that conversation back sorry yeah. i cut you off there well, no, i mean you, you may be right about you know if like again i don't know this guy cernovich but I, i've seen how he's he's tried to get my attention on twitter yeah. um and the guy just seems like a pure jackass to me i mean it's like right. why, why would well, i ever talk to this guy he's he's <laughs> he's an imbecile um but so so if Dave can't see that, or if I mean if if Dave thinks he's he's fantastic, well then there's some work that that you know what one of them you know one of us has to be wrong here. So there's there's some right. work to do. And uh, well, even on his podcast with Dave, he said something like, "Well, I can be eloquent, or I can be more eloquent, but you're just or but people are just going to call me a rapist anyways." I mean, and and you think that when someone's saying that to your face, you'd ask why. Why are they going to call you a rapist? Yeah, I have, I have, I have no idea what that guy's up to, but it's, it's <laughs> doesn't appear to be interesting from where I'm sitting. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, he's very powerful and influential, and he can, he can influence a lot of people, and and so can Dave, and that's what that's what concerns me. Hmm. But he, enough about Dave. Um, so you're not voting for Trump then? Uh, no, I, I will not be. I've no, I've said a lot about Trump on my podcast. I know, I know, and I've been I've listened to it all, and I have been so happy because, uh, you know, my following of Sam Harris is sometimes like a like a roller coaster. Mm. Then one day there's like, oh, this interview with Anne Marie Waters is good, and I'm like, oh no, Sam. Well, well that's why? another example. So that's the only thing I've ever seen. From Anne Marie Waters, but you see why then Gad and Ruben are 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 doing some harmful things because they're presenting these people in the best light possible. Okay, but but so so but do you agree? You, you watched that interview, right? Did do you I, agree that that she came off? I mean, she basically no, sounded like me or or Douglas or someone. I mean, D Douglas. I didn't my version watch of Douglas. the interview, okay. but I just. Uh, I know who she is, and I know that she thinks if you're not anti-immigration, as she said to me and Mario Namazi, then you're pro the rape of white women. Um, right, but I guess, so and she heads this organization called Pegida with Tommy and right. with a a white genocide guy called uh, Paul Weston, I believe, and um, 
she Paul Weston is a guy who thinks that no Muslims should ever be allowed to hold public office, even Muslims like Majid Nawaz. And they're all heading this uh, pro-freedom, supposedly, uh, organization, which which is clearly contradictory because they're not pro-freedom. Tommy talks about uh, deporting Muslims. Uh, Paul Weston doesn't want them to be able to hold public office. Anne-Marie thinks you're pro-rape of white women if you're not anti-immigration uh, or prepared to let rape happen. And uh, but, but she the, thinks that— But the problem—I mean, again, the—, the I mean, this is this is an area where we're in, you know, it, it, this is a gray area in the sense that, you know, she's right. When you look at what's happened in Europe in the last twelve months, you have a lot of you have a lot of people on the left who are prepared to let w- white women get raped by Muslim immigrants. I mean, there 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 are people who are prepared to be raped themselves. I don't know if you heard. <laughs> what? You, did, did did you hear the story of the woman who got raped by three? refugees or three you know non-german speaking migrants um and when she reported this rape she was so afraid to spark racial tension that she she claimed she was raped by three german men and then she then like oh, it, like 48 hours later she recanted it and oh. and she described them accurately but that's I mean, one. But then there's a there's another story of a German girl who made up a story about being raped by Muslim immigrants sure. when she wasn't. But what? So, but, but what? No one. It seems that that what no one can reasonably dispute now is that there have been there's been a wave of sexual assaults, which absolutely. which which the left feels some obligation to not report or at least right to, and that's a problem that's yeah. a huge problem again okay. there's that thing in the middle where you can't deny what is happening if there's sexual assaults you can't downplay it or deny the identity of those people just because they're an identity that you wish to shield or whatever this is right. absolutely wrong but then on the other hand you can't lump everyone in no, into no, that but, identity. but again, it's, it's easy to see, and, and so this is the most charitable view. And again, I'm, I'm dealing with like Anne Marie, just based on the one hour of of footage I saw of her. But you take something like the Rotherham, you know, s- right. sexual yeah. grooming scandal, which I think she was talking about in that interview. Um, first of all, that's that's been underreported in the West. Mm-hmm. I mean, mo- most people will have no idea what yeah. the story is, and the story, as reported is so ghastly. I mean, we're now talking about something like 1,500 English girls being gang-raped by mostly uh, Pakistani men um, Mm -hmm. over a period of years. And they were, uh, you know, the parents were reporting it and the cops were doing nothing because they didn't want to be accused of being racist. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the most insane subversion of liberal principles uh, in an open society um, and it's totally. e- it's easy to describe that as the suicide of a civilization uh, because I mean just just extrapolate from that to to you know what what is the future of Europe if there's anyone disposed to not protect eleven year old girls uh, from you know being gang raped by mm-hmm. by immigrants right uh, and so it's easy to to see someone like. Anne Marie, who's living much closer to that reality than I am, uh, just finally arrive at the end of her patience with immigration and 
to not not to not want to spend any like okay if you're going to argue that some people nevertheless should still be let in because they're the future Ion Hirsi Ali or Majid Nawaz or or uh, you know someone who's who who clearly you know the, the West and an open society has no problem with clearly someone who's just an asset even though that's the case uh, the bias should be on not letting anyone in for the moment, right? Because the, this problem is, again, this is like the Trump line. Like, until we understand the nature of this problem, the onus is on uh, Muslims to prove that they, they should be let in rather than the default setting be, let's let them all in and work out the problem once we discover how bad it is. Right, letting them all in is not going to work, but letting none of them in is also not going to work, I don't think. Well, because, I, and I happen to agree with you, but I, I can see how someone would have zero confidence in the vetting process. I mean, because I mean, we can't even have confidence, given something like Rotherham, we can't even have confidence that the cops will prosecute rapes, a rape allegation, mm-hmm. uh, when it happens over the period of years to children by the by by the hundreds and even thousands. I mean, the story is so insane that... The story is insane and the cop's behavior is insane and it's so awful. I completely understand and empathize with all those things. And I don't know if you've ever seen this movie called Banaz by Dia Khan as well. No, um, no. It is, it's, it's brilliant and it's really, uh, it's being used to train police now. So there's this girl, um, Iraqi, I think. There's this girl who is... Um, going to the police constantly. They have her interviews and she's saying that I'm afraid for my life. They're going to kill me. Uh, I've started dating someone or something and they're going to kill me. And they listen to her and they send her back because Mm. it's their culture. She talks about being raped by her husband that she's been forced to marry. They didn't do anything. Right. But, but I mean, even that, so uh, obviously that's, that's, uh, Awful. And but, they found her in a suitcase. They found her dead, like right. in the end. Right. I mean, so but it's like those those stories are terrible, but understandable in the sense that you've got these non-Muslim white cops who don't want to be accused of racism, and they just they don't understand the norms in that culture, and they've been they've they've drunk the Kool Aid of multiculturalism. And, and so they think rape is okay, right. like within yeah. a marriage. You know, these people marry kids, and it's not our business to criticize it. You know, they, they, they you can see how they got stuck there. The thing that is Im- really impossible to imagine, but for the fact that it that it seems to have occurred, is you have people who can't even prosecute the rape of the the white white non-muslim girls in their own community yeah, even yeah. when the body count is now in the thousands right in in uh, a small town in england it's just like you you just can't believe the masochism has uh, of the left has ha, could be taken to that extreme and it, yet it that's what people are dealing with it's hard for me to believe i i can't i can't believe that they would do that and, and and turn people away and and just not care. like how does that happen I don't know I don't know if that would happen in North America to that extent it's, it's unimaginable and what I what I can't believe is that some of these fathers d- didn't just start killing Pakistani men I mean just just finding who these guys were and you would have had a wave of murders oh gosh I mean, Sam you're going to be sampled on that no but, I mean, but like like no I'm just I'm just like how did that not happen given this level of inattention from this is a total failure of the state. 
right? There's a total breakdown right, of, of, of the state. And but but so but one story like that, I I mean that has just immense power. I mean one story like that that also just gets ignored by by mainstream media for the most part. Um, and then then you're someone like Anne Marie Waters, who's one of the few people talking about it. Um, I. But she's shrieking in an irrational manner about every single Muslim. This is not. No, but but it's not rational to take that story and project it onto every immigrant. Yeah, but the the problem is not that it's every immigrant, but the problem it's some percentage of every group of unvetted immigrants, right? Well, then absolutely. That's that's what's so excruciating about this. Like it's like you know no you know no process of screening will be perfect, and you know. That there's only one group that is tending to do these things. I mean, say if you're, t- you're going to take misogyny and and the abuse of women, then it's, then it's obviously a bigger problem than Islam. Um, I'm sure you could get Hindus behaving this way as well. Um, you could get far right white British men yeah, behaving that way too. Right, but but I mean, in terms of the norms that are going to give you. Um, the the most extreme versions of this pathology. I and mean, if you're going to talk about honor killing, for instance, well then then, right. you're, then you're talking about stuff coming out of out of Southeast um, Asia, Southeast Asia yeah. um, and the Middle East. So, but if you're talking about the 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 whole problem, you, you know the, the susceptibility to jihadism and all the rest, then you're talking about Islam and and you know so Douglas's question, which doesn't have a great answer. Which is, you know, what number of jihadists do you want to import into your society? You know, what number of Islamists? You know, like you're going to get some. With no, every but group. Douglas's question was, what what is the ceiling of white Britons that you're satisfied with? Well, no, no, but, but no, but that wasn't his question on my podcast with him. I mean, oh, qu- on the pot, right, right, yeah. okay, yeah. His question was, you're you're going to be, you know, you're going to be. Be bringing in more of all these things you don't want, right? And are right not to want. You know, it's like you you're right not to want any ISIS recruits coming into Belgium and France and right. the UK. But you're gonna have ISIS recruiting people in Belgium and France anyway. And you're right not to want people who are susceptible to that. And the only people who are susceptible to that are Muslims or people who are gonna become Muslims. Right? But you can't tell who's going to become Muslim. But you well, but you can tell who already is a Muslim, right? Yes, and, and that's yes, most can. most of the but problem. That ends up being really unfair, and this becomes a circle, right? You, if you if you're excluding Muslims entirely, then as Ayan says, it's it's kind of immoral, and well, it's, it it is ends but, up excluding people but, that would be your greatest allies. In tackling radical Islam, because that will come from within the community. There's right. no other way that it can be tackled. It but has to come from within. I, I totally agree with you, and that's exactly been my position on immigration. But the only way that that position will be truly credible is if so-called Muslims moderate Muslims up. actually yeah. tackle the problem. Right, and you don't get this identity politics. I mean, it, I understand, it, but then when people who are criticizing Islam are engaging with these far right anti-immigrants, um, that is going to lose its effectiveness for people to to actually listen to what what we're saying. Because yeah, yeah. then they won't trust 
because if you're saying that Pegida is a good group or um, Anne Marie Waters is good on immigration, oh yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, it it doesn't sound like you're a trustworthy person then from the outside unless you really uh, unless someone really follows you like me. Right. I know all your other views, so I, I understand that your intent is good. But for someone who's just skimming through your work or whatever, and they'll see like you tweeting about Tommy's interview being good right. or about Anne Marie's water. Anne Marie Waters interview being good then they'll think that you align with their positions and this is where Ruben and Gad play a concerning role where they kind of sanitize these people and present them to an audience right well, again, again it's, it's it's just the um, it's the liability of talking to anyone because you know, no, but you don't do that, Sam. You well, don't do that on your show. Well, no, but someone could, someone could, I, I could inadvertently, and someone you could, won't do it like constantly as a pattern, even after people are t- pointing out it's a pattern, right? But I mean, for instance, someone could, someone who hates me or has misunderstood me, uh, or maybe has actually accurately understood me and just thinks I'm so wrong as to be dangerous, um. They may think you just did that on this show. I mean, you and I have now spoken for for two and a half hours, and you haven't challenged me on my views about torture, say, or or you know nuclear <laughs> proliferation, right? So the, the people who believe the the worst you know straw man misrepresentations of my views on those subjects, who are waiting for you to say, well, what does Sam think about torture? And you're not going to do it. And now you are totally irresponsible. You had a torture apologist on your your podcast, and you didn't challenge him, right? So we're all. Well, whereas people on your um, Twitter will say that you had a regressive leftist, a right. stealth Islamist that you spoke to. So yeah, so the, the, there's no. I mean, we're all going to be hung by that standard. No, eventually. I know, but there are some unfair criticism. Like you can surely see the difference between you and um, Pam Geller. Or you can see the difference between me and Greenwald. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I certainly see the latter. Um, I, the truth is, I don't know. And I, I just plead ignorance even about Pam. I just know that she has been, her reputation is bad enough that she's an example of someone who I should not be on a panel with. But again, I don't but, actually know. Like, I haven't even. Why don't you find out then? Like, well, I, because this will come up. Time and time again. Why don't you make up your mind on Pam Geller and Robert Spencer? Right. Well, I, I don't totally know how to do that, given that I, um, I mean, I can I can watch a bunch of videos with them, but but the thing is, the the kinds of things people say. I mean, she she's not going to say I hate black people, right? Or I, you know, she's not going to use the N word, yeah, uh, with with enthusiasm. Um, so she's probably going to, I'm expecting her to say the sorts of things that I have said in other contexts or I've said on this podcast. You know, like five minutes ago, I was talking about how, you know, it's only Muslims who are bringing this problem, right? Um, that's, an, you know, to, to, in an abbreviated context, you know, when you're only given 10 minutes to speak, say, or, or 10 seconds to speak, and you just have someone say, well, 100% of jihadists are Muslims, uh, right? So if you don't want any more jihadists, you don't want any more Muslims, right? And then, you know, cut to... But another, you recognize that um, singling out Muslims and banning them uh, from immigrating is immoral. You also say that. I don't yes, think she'll yes, say but, that. Yes, but, it, but it, is, it is a... 
it's not a trivially easy case to make given the nature of the problem. And I mean, so for instance, here, so here's an, uh, here's the ed- the edgiest thing I believe in this area, which which you might find appalling, but it it seems it strikes me as as pretty obviously true. So so like the the people coming out of Syria and Iraq as refugees are you know they're they're there purely by bad luck and i think we have a moral obligation to help them insofar as we we possibly can without you know harming ourselves to, to a degree that you know would cancel that obligation so i want to help all those people that we can help and then the question is how to do it and how many can we help so let's say we decided that we could take in 3 million people from from Syria and Iraq into the United States. Let's say that was just, I don't know, how, it's going to be mm-hmm. arbitrary how you get to that number, but let's say there's some number short of 100% that that is the number. Well, then who should we take in? And let, let, let's say there were 3 million Yazidis and Christians, right? Now, I don't know if there's anything like that number of, of, of either group, but let's just say that that were true, right? That That there were, all these people are equally... Uh, imperiled. Uh, arguably, the Yazidis and the Christians are could be slightly more imperiled. Certainly, I, I, you could make that case for the Yazidis, and I, I, I would even make that case mm-hmm. probably for the Christians, despite what you said about the the um, takfirism issue. Mm-hmm. Um, well, then. But what wh- about gay Muslims? Yeah, no. I guess, so, and and add gay Muslims, right? So just just homosexual Muslims and uh, the rest. Um, but what if people lie to, to? What if they say they're gay to to get over here? Yeah. Well, so uh, I, again, there's, there's there's the possibility for deception. You could say you're Christian and not be right. Hmm. But so there's no there's no process of screening that's perfect. But let's just say that we have a we have a limited limited number of seats on the lifeboat, which we it was probably true. And who are we going to give those seats to? Other people are going to drown by definition. Is just the nature mm-hmm. of the situation. Is it wrong to give those seats preferentially to Yazidis, Christians, gay Muslims, people who are not at all, for, for the most part, the average Muslim? And I don't see but that— But you're it, still including Muslims. Well, you're okay. including gay Muslims okay. and possibly you know, apostates and whatever, right? Well, I, well, I would obviously include these people— I would I would include a hundred percent of these people if I could have reliable information. But given but that this is what differentiates it, you, no, but no, but I I think a lot of these people are saying are are building in the unreliable the unreliability of the information or the unreliability of the screening into their criticism of immigration. They're saying we can't figure out who these people are. Right? We don't need to. to we don't need any more of this problem. We don't need so or you know in in the aftermath of Orlando, what they think is. I don't need any more people in my neighborhood who are going to get on YouTube and watch Anwar al-Awlaki for 15 hours and but go berserk. But do you berserk. think that's short-sighted? I think I think it is short-sighted, but it's only but it's only short it's only unethical if you are not making the case uh, or you feel you can't make the case that we should be we should be biased toward taking in non-Muslims from these same areas, right? And that bias makes sense to me from a from a security point of view and from the vulnerability of the people we're taking in point of view. From both sides, 
it makes sense to me. Now, that would be, that would be considered, I think, on the left, a, a a truly reprehensible position to have. That you, you mm-hmm. you're, you're going to have a religious screening mm-hmm. of the most desperate people on earth uh, before you let them into your society. Uh, so this would put me like you know right in with Anne Marie <laughs> Waters and and you know the other maniacs uh, in <laughs> arguing that we should have this test, but. Um, I, that's not the test. Well, te- no, because because you do make the distinctions that she doesn't. That's the difference. Well, but you, but you show that you have compassion. You make it a point to say that we need to get the future ions and future Majids and whoever in. That Those are the okay. most important people to bring in if you want to tackle this. And given that people are easily able to lie to their benefit, I don't think that such a test or screening would be effective anyway. Well, so I mean, that, that's point? something I'm, I'm I'm genuinely interested to know. I mean, I, I don't know how good a, a screening procedure could be, but um, yeah, I, you know, I I feel I, I I agree with all those things, and and I, I say those things given enough time. But it's totally possible to catch me, whether you know by design or just by bad luck, um, to, to catch only half of my message, and I and I yeah. ne- and I never know when that's happened to someone like. Anne Marie Waters or Pamela Geller or, or whoever else. But that, not when people are repeatedly uh, saying the same sorts of things, right? Like Pegida is an organization that's had a problem right. with Kinder Chocolates having a, a black football player on their wrappers. And, right. and it turns out he they didn't know who this child was, but usually there's a blonde child on Kinder Chocolates and they were upset. But this, it turned out this was like a special edition uh, of the chocolates where they had like childhood pictures of the football team uh, or the soccer team. Right. And yeah. um, well, so I mean, yeah, there 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 are people who so stake out positions a- that you know. So if you have there's a group that is going to object to a black person advertising a candy bar versus a white person, well, then you, I, I think you're probably on safe ground knowing. That there's the ra- racism founder. at the bottom of this, yeah was exposed to have like photos dressed up as Hitler and yeah, and stuff okay. like that's how the founder is and so Dave Rubin probably out of ignorance yeah there's uh, no not way out of maliciousness there's no, no way he, he knows did, this stuff there's no way he knows the thing, this he's not willing to listen he calls everyone who stood up against uh, his endorsement of Pegida. He said something like, well, Pegida doesn't sound like a hate group at all. So, you know, it sounds like it's pretty reasonable. Well, listen then, Dave, to people who are telling you stuff or or acknowledge that you might have made a mistake. You can't double down. Right. But, so, but the thing is, so what he did, again, in his defense, and this could only really work if you were talking to him, but so he invites Tommy Robinson on his show just to, interact with his the views he's actually going to put forward in real time and get just to give him a, a chance to stick his foot in his mouth or express his racism if in fact he is a racist and I'm sure if I recall correctly he brought up the question of you know whether or not he has any racist motives <laughs> oh, or, but that's not good enough you can't just ask someone who's well, no, like but, a mild bigot well, no, uh, no, are no, you a bigot well, well no but a real racist would say no I actually think you know I, I want to live in a neighborhood with white people 
You know, it's like I don't want to see brown skinned people in my neighborhood, right? That's, that's no, but you you do you do know there's so many degrees to racism, right? And, well, and like a yes, lot of of course, open of course, racists will say they're not racist. There's even white supremacists who say they're not racist. Yeah, but but if they're if they're at all committed to the agenda of white supremacy, it's got to come out somewhere in the conversation. They have to maybe not in an hour long conversation, especially if you're like leading with like, well, your group sounds like a great group and you sound really reasonable. You're not a bigot. Are you? No. Okay. Then it's not going to cut like, and and Tommy's not that kind of, he's not even maybe a racist, like a hardcore racist. He'll retweet the occasional white rights stuff. Mm. Um, but the problem is he's a critic of Islam that does engage in uh, anti-Muslim bigotry. So that's not really racism. But if he's calling for deportation and he's saying, I separate Islam from Muslims and I have nothing against Muslims, then he needs to be challenged on that. And his right. hate group needs to be at least not endorsed. But, but the thing is, again, uh, and maybe I'm being too sympathetic to these people, but uh, I'm just allowing for... Um, the experience, I mean, the, the experience he describes of living in, is it Luton? Is that the yeah, town he lives yeah, in? Yeah, so, so. And just how, how radicalized the Muslim community is there, I mean, in his neighborhood, right? And so he's got mosques that preach, you know, jihadism in, so that, you know, you know, undercover, you know, Channel 4 and BBC exposés of these mosques find, you know, just absolutely crazy Islamism and jihadism in the UK being subsidized by, you know, the, the welfare state of the UK. So he's paying taxes, you know, to support the, the hate speech of the, the, the local imam, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just very easy to see that he finds this intolerable. And no, I completely empathize with him on that. And, and, and we've talked to like, you know, when I reached out to him to have a conversation, uh, I completely empathized with him and told him that I understand these are real issues. And he only makes his voice less effective when he engages in this tribalism. So he'll tweet stuff like um, there's a two tier police system where the the police are not calling out the Muslim lads, but they're calling out the the British lads. And then he'll make this distinction between British and Muslim in his language. And I'm like, well, there are Muslims that are British also. Okay, and but, so when but, you, but that, again, that's that's too fine a point to have to make in that context. I mean, the the context is they are there. And again, I'm just taking this at face value. The cops are. Uh, cracking down on white non-muslim protesters and mm-hmm. letting you know to take the take the extreme case letting you know the, the pakistani guys groom and rape 11 year old white girls for years at a time i don't right? you know his tweet was about some subway something it wasn't rape. really about rape or it was okay just, but i'm just taking this those that, that extreme juxtaposition of based on political correctness and not wanting to seem racist we have cops who will not even prosecute uh, you know, rape crimes that are that are obviously being committed and, and have been reported for years, and they will, you know, but they'll turn down the screws on someone like Tommy Robinson for using the wrong words. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no, they didn't. I, I was just saying, how can you be more effective, Tommy? Because you have a a real message to get across, but you're constantly tart. And the thing that I noticed in mine and G Spellchecker's interview with him. Um, 
was that he was so much more open to listening. He even acknowledged, he even admitted that, yes, when he goes into that mode where it's like us versus them, Mm. he kind of, he doesn't make the point that he needs to make. And he should maybe try not to do that. If you like, we're all after the same result, but our tactics vary, I think. No, well, well, I agree. And it's just hard to get everything into the same moment or the same sentence or onto the same page. And so, so you have to, there, there has to be some principle of charity where you're willing to hear someone out and. Of course, and that take was their, my entire, you know, point for talking to Tommy yeah. since he, he's, he's regressed since then, like a lot. Hmm. Um, and that, that is my point for inviting Robert Spencer on. I'm not interested in, you know, shouting him down or, I'm just interested in exploring where our differences yeah. are. Well, that, and just trying to understand. Yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing that. And just, yeah, uh, you know, I think you should try to, you know, take your own medicine here and figure out what kind of conversation you will have with him that you can leave. And that, that, uh, that I think it would be very interesting if you, if you could do my work for me in this po- interview with Spencer, I mean, <laughs> how, how could you have a conversation with him that is sufficiently thorough that you really feel and that, that I will feel having listened to it, that at the end of it, you know who he is and what his commitments yeah. are and, and whether he's been unfairly tarred as, yeah, as a Yeah, and that works bo- both ways. Like if I'm wrong about him, I'm happy to adjust my position on him. Yeah, yeah. It's not like I'm going in thinking I want to hate him, so I'm going to make sure that no matter what he says, I hate him. If he sounds reasonable... And I come away from that thinking that he's he's reasonable. I mean, that's truly how I felt about Tommy. Like people, for speaking to him, I was like, "But look, I gave him a chance, and he was so reasonable. He even acknowledged his his uh, mistakes, his tribalism, and he said he he shouldn't do it." But then people told me that he just is very good at agreeing with whoever talks to him nicely, and then he. Mm doesn't really have a change of heart or do he since then he's gone i mean he threw quilliam under the bus completely for mm. and they actually really try to work with him right um well i, I think I, and again this is I, I could be mistaken about this but from what i i've heard him say i think he just had a much bigger reaction to uh the discovery that i have had you know since you know working with majid which is that Majid is so roundly demonized among you know so-called moderate Muslims to say nothing to, to say nothing of you know conservative and and Islamist ones that he, he like you know you, I mean Majid is fantastic Majid is a friend of mine Majid Majid is someone who I will do everything I can to support and I, I think mm-hmm. Majid is the future but to find that he that there that he represents so few people is very disconcerting or at least and that's that's the way it seems and maybe maybe Tommy had a a much bigger collision with that fact you know living in the UK with Majid and 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 being you know ha- having the experience he had of you know leaving the EDL maybe he just he thought you know Majid had an army of of reasonable people behind him whereas you know when he was standing shoulder to shoulder with him all he was finding was that the Muslims hated Majid just as much as they hate him. 
And that and that, sure. that could have been but a but he came out experience. and said stuff like uh, they paid me to leave and yeah I, I don't I don't uh, know what happened there I mean I, I'm I, you know what, however Majid has represented it I, I certainly trust that but yeah but I, I don't yeah, know the details too. well listen Ian it's it's been great to talk to you is there anything we haven't addressed that leaves you with lingering concerns about the state of my own brain. Nothing, I, Nothing. That, that leaves me with concern. But I, uh, I wanted to ask you if you would ever do Zoolander for a Halloween costume. Just uh, the last thing I'm going to ask you. Um, I, I, in in some possible universe, I, I'm sure I've already done that, but I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I wouldn't rule it out. I, but before we close, I, there's one thing I want to say that um, I'm sure your listeners are, are aware of, but I, I just. Um, if not, they all should be. That interview you did, I forgot the journalist's name, but you did an interview with this Globe and Mail writer. Oh, John Semley. Who, I mean, that was, that was such an amazing interview, uh, which I, mean, I remember spreading it around at the time. But what, so this guy was just the most regressive of the, the regressive leftists. And what you did there was something that I have never been able to do and you know i can only aspire to do which is i mean here you're encountering kind of the worst of the worst of 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 leftist confusion but you seem to be just purely amused by it and you just kind of led him down the primrose path for long (laughs) enough for for him to just hang himself whereas i mean when i'm dealing with someone like that you know my sense of humor goes completely out the window immediately right i mean it just it becomes a a kind of moral emergency for me to get oh. perform an exorcism <laughs> on this guy, um, and this is something that I ran into with you know uh, Omar Aziz on my podcast. And, oh yeah, um, that you know, podcast it, it just becomes a death march. Uh, so I just want to say that what you did there was just so absolutely beautiful, and, and and you have a very unique ability to do that, and you should just keep keep doing it keep going because that was that was amazing and i, I really i really uh, admired it well thank you thank you so much i can't tell you how much that that means uh coming from you i yeah yeah just, well, that's a model that's a model that that i think what i tweeted at the time was that this should be immediately studied in 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 schools of journalism all over the country um, <laughs> seriously thank you so much for for giving me so much of your time and i hope that we get to to speak again. I really enjoyed talking to you. And um, yeah, if you're ever in the Toronto area, you should come and have like a Muslim dinner at my parents' house. Oh, I that's great. I'd love to do that. Well, thanks again so much, Sam, for giving me so much of your time. And I hope that we can chat again soon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been, it's been great to talk to you and, uh, and just keep it up, Ina. I, I love what you're doing. Thank you. Take care. Uh, Yeah, to be continued. Bye. Okay, bye, Anna. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian Mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal, nicemangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no Ian Mangoes. 
If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. A special thanks to Dylan Beck for theme music, sound, and production help. <laughs>